Not a fan of the uh, frozen garlic cubes, huh? I honestly did not know that that was a thing that existed. That's ah, tremendous. It's tremendous. I think I think she gets them the whole the Whole Foods. For for our listeners, I sent John a photo of a uh, a product that's a staple in our house. It's uh, maybe the size of like a little bigger than a three by five card. It looks like an ice cube tray. And it's uh, a cube of crushed garlic frozen into a cube, and you just pop it out. I don't understand the point. Like I said, like garlic keeps for so long. Ugh, but then you gotta, you gotta do the whole thing with it. You gotta cut it up. You get garlic fingers. You gotta smash it. I call that cooking. Ugh, I guess. As opposed to assembly. Yeah, you know, I, I I've been thinking a lot about the food. I feel bad we did an episode about food, but I I, I I feel like I want to understand more about you and ingredients. Because that's, first of all, can we just say, you sound like a kind of a picky eater. Are you a picky eater? Yeah, you definitely have to put me in the picky eater. Like, I'm not super picky, but if there's a if there's a midpoint, I'm to the picky side of the midpoint. So, like, I was trying to go back and, and re-listen and, and think about, you know, in the interest of helping you, thinking about, like, what your family, what your kids could eat. And, and in listening to the episode, it sounds like you have a variety of challenges. Like, it sounds like both you and your wife are, are capricious, you know, will-of-the-wisps who can't decide what they want to eat and then may not <laughs> like it even if it's made. Which is a problem. Uh, she's better than I am about that. She has a wider range of things that she'll eat. But, you know, you, you just like, I mean, don't you have this where you just kind of get tired of like all the <laughs> things that you know how to cook? Every day is a Kierkegaardian struggle for me, John. I <laughs> I just, I don't want to think about anything anymore. And like the, the food thing, I covered this already, but like seriously, like today it was like, I had a pretty okay day. I had a pretty productive day. Spent like half a day hanging out with my kid, but it was like it got to be two o'clock and I was like, ugh. I don't have the energy to even order Instacart to deliver the food to make the food I don't want to make. I'm completely sick of but but this is the Kierkegaardian part, you know? It's a the leap of faith, you know? You you you, you got to just keep making food. But but see now okay now now okay now you just gave me another piece of the puzzle. So, uh you got the uh, you got the uh, you got the problem that, that you guys are capricious will of the wisps. Uh your kids sounds like I, I don't want to say I don't want to cast an aspersion, but it sounds like your kids have dietary needs. It's not dietary. It is purely attitudinal. They, to use your phrase, both, it's it's fashion. It's preference. Yeah, they are both picky eaters. Okay, so you got potentially four picky eaters. It sounds like another challenge is you don't have that much in the Venn diagram of the Syracuse uh, kitchen. There's not that much overlap for any of you. Yes, in terms of food. Yes, in terms of ingredients, but also in terms of preferences, style, and interest. Like there's, you're, you guys are all all over, all over the map. Except yeah, for the kids, I, I, except for the kids well, wanting sweet stuff, but, right? Yeah, but the kids change. Like they change so much. Like you, you, you know, it's inexplicable how they go from one thing is like the best food ever to something else that they just won't eat. Like I remember way back when my son went through a phase where he liked uh, wagon wheel pasta with nothing on it but cheese. Occasionally, I would put olive oil, cheese, olive oil, and wagon wheel pasta. And you're thinking to yourself, we, we we got it, we got to figure it out. We just got to keep wagon wheels in the house. No, it's not like it was not a very good meal. It's not particularly nutritious. It's basically carbs with a little tiny bit of cheese on it, right? But for so long, he was into that, and then one day, he wasn't. He hasn't had it in years. Okay, here's another bullet point. Okay, first of all, I'm sorry, I hate that. Here's another bullet point, though, is I think you have a lot of internal conflict about this whole healthy eating thing. It sounds like you don't enjoy eating healthy. Yeah, I, 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 I'm fine with it. When's the last you know? time you tucked into a nice piece of salmon? Oh, I don't, I don't eat fish, remember? <laughs> ding, 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 ding. That's the one category that's just cut out. Okay, so that's what I'm trying to say. It's like, but, 
like, okay, but, but then what can what will you eat if you won't eat pasta? So far, all I've heard that like people will oh, consider. I won't eat pasta. Of course, I'll eat pasta. Well, but you then you feel guilty. You don't want to have hamburgers because you feel oh, guilty. Oh no, I don't like it. for me for myself. I don't feel like I I feel okay as long as I'm eating actual real food, mm-hmm. which means not just a bunch of processed junk, like things that have actual ingredients that I can identify that you put together and you eat. So part of it is that it's an uphill, joyless slog. It isn't like you could go, hey, let's have, you know, zucchini casserole. And everybody goes, yay. It's, it's like there's nothing that everybody's excited about that right. isn't I'm, gross. I'm excited about a lot of things. And sometimes I, I just have to make the thing that I'm excited about with the full knowledge that no one else will be excited about it. And then I'll get to eat it. And then that happens for other people. So the kids aren't excited about anything. My wife is occasionally excited about one or two things that I make, but sounds like a real party there. You know, it's we we get through. You know, I'm thinking things like uh, you see what Marco's doing with the uh, the Blue Apron. You know about that? Yeah, Blue Apron's funny. Blue, Blue Apron, they send you they send they send you everything you need to make something. Is that right? And a recipe. They send you the recipe, well, exactly, the ingredients, yeah. just like everything. And it's it's a good way. You know, to, for, they were you know Marco and Tiff were both saying like to get them out of their rut of like the things that they normally eat. This is something new and exciting each day. It's like, oh, this is great. You know, if you if, if you can't decide what you want to eat, have someone else choose for you, send you the ingredients, and every day you'll have a different thing. Uh, but that would never work for us because I look at all those things and like probably wouldn't like that, probably wouldn't like that, probably wouldn't like that. Right, <laughs> you know, right, right. Like, right. And, and that's just me. Like, I'm just, just one opinion is rejecting those. The kids won't like any of them. Uh, yeah, and this is like one or two. This is why I, I continue to think that meal planning could be something you could do because once you see all of the post it notes in one place, you know, you can find some patterns and eventually come up with something where, like, well, two nights this week, we'll make something we're pretty sure the kids won't hate. But yeah, I, I mean, that's more or less what we do. It's just not formalized. My wife does most of the, the, the real the meal planning, she's, she's taking most of the responsibility for that. It's just not very uh, formal of a system. We've tried, I think, hmm, God, I hate when I say these things because it's on the record. I think one way my wife and I differ is that, and I she don't- She won't listen, don't worry. Oh, no, I'm not worried, but like, who knows, this could come up in court someday, Your, your, <laughs> your Honor. Um, is that, you know, she, I think, is, she's much more health conscious in general. She wants everyone to live. And I think she's definitely, she's not a nut, but she is and has always been much more concerned about the quality of ingredients on every level. She's lived in California, you know, uh, since she came here for college in like 1989, you know, and she really is, has been part of the whole like, well, gosh, we've got this, all these great, all this great produce. It's fresh. Organic stuff is not as expensive. You can get to it. You know, whereas I've always kind of been like, I don't know, organic I don't really know what that means anymore. It feels kind of sketchy. It feels like organic today is what just normal food used to be. <laughs> if, if you're lucky. But do you know what I'm saying? Like, it seems like like whole ingredients. I, I You know, obviously, you can read the ingredients on any crazy thing in the last 60 years and just, you know, banana ball stuff on there. But, um, but she's always been more concerned with those kinds of things. So we've tried to do things like kind of like changing the motivation right so instead of going like oh you know we don't want to be pushing a rope here with thinking about food all the time like we'll order we'll spend forty dollars and get a box of organic produce every week have you ever done anything like this yeah we've done that a few times it's it's such an interesting idea because you say and we've tried several different ones (laughs) 
<laughs> it's it's like getting your house cleaned. Have you ever had your house cleaned professionally? Like the first time they do it, it's amazing. The second time they clean your house, it's okay. And like the rest of the time, it's like they couldn't be bothered to cover up their own smudge marks. Like there's these funny things. And the same thing with the organic. The first time you get it, you're like, wow, look at all this stuff. And then like it starts to feel like, you know, especially in the winter, uh, we get like, it's just all like root vegetables. And like, I just don't want to make any of it. So we get like $40 yeah. worth of organic garbage. Can't, can't we get some papayas in here in the middle of December or what? I know. I know. Someone exactly. burn some jet fuel to bring me some food. And it's all stuff. She, she, we get this box full of stuff that's various kinds of leafy green things with something attached to it. And I'm like, is that, I think that might be like rainbow kale or like, <laughs> like, uh, is it like plum roots or something? Like, what is that? And she's like, oh no, that's. You know, that's charred and that's this and that's that. It's all stuff that I would never buy in a store. But like she she's into it. She makes a salad. She makes it okay. Bitter greens and stuff like that. But make soups with that stuff. That's what you gotta do with the stuff here that you find unpalatable. How's your, how's your family loves, everyone loves soup. How's your family feel about soup? They're not as into it as I am. I love a soup. Yeah, who doesn't like a soup? That's, oh, I that's love a winter a soup. food. I love a soup. Now what about what about uh, your stews and casseroles? Yeah, we do that. We have a beef stew occasionally. Not not many casseroles. Not really into the casseroles, but yeah. you know, we have a couple of liquid based things that we try to mix up. You know, the other thing is that in the winter time, it's so much easier to cook because like you're warming your house up with the oven and everything. In the mm-hmm. summer, you just don't want to. That's why you end up grilling so much stuff. You just want to not make things hot inside the house. We don't have air conditioning. <laughs> just leave house. a pineapple and a knife on the table and take a nap. <laughs> yeah. I liked your, by the way, I liked your characterization of your wife before it reminded me of the Dr. Katz episode. She said, she's not a nut. All I heard in my head was, she's not a hunchback. Remember that episode? <laughs> I don't remember that one. Oh, oh my God. Did you enjoy that show? I loved it. Loved That's it. one of my, I, I still, I still quote Dr. Katz many times every week. I don't think Ray Romano has ever been funnier than he was. Yeah, on I heard show. you do uh, uh, Happy Go Jackie on a waffle on a previous uh, Back to Work. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's not from Dr. Katz, but still. So Although, did he do, did he reprise that skit? In Happy Dr. Go Jackie was remember. on, I think, on SNL. Yeah, SNL, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, Alexandra, what are you what are you doing? What are you thinking about? Candy. When's the last time? When's the last time you just get to think and think about candy? Oh, candy. Oh, yeah, I, know, oh, I, I, I got cancer. <laughs> <laughs> the, the heavy cat sauce this is another one of my favorite clips took me a while to find that one sister my man my mean man's sister um that was gold oh my god uh, that was good yeah oh and the other thing the other thing i was doing tonight before we uh hopped on to record was i was uh you remember uh, uh trading places oh yeah, absolutely yeah right so uh the parking garage the crop report oh yeah sure all about that well the uh, the destiny crop report came out today so i was, I was reading it intently uh, the the real the real crop report the one they're waiting for well it, the destiny equivalent of that crop report like oh the, people... the destiny crop report yes yes which is the, the yet another weapon rebalancing announcement anyway it's very complicated when we get oh, we'll get to destiny eventually I'll explain it to you but it was just very exciting today that that came out and I have to read it, reading it intently because you want to know like how did the how did the oranges fare you know you're reading a crop report about a first person shooter game it's not actually a crop report I'm I'm trying to give you an analogy I'm trying to give you something to hold on to okay 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 um, well you know uh, I like to think that we're becoming something like long distance friends I I I, I don't I don't pr- try to provoke you on the internet I try to stay out of your video games because I know you're having fun with those but I have to say that I have never felt more completely adrift on a topic since maybe German philosophy <laughs> in in college since maybe 19th century German philosophy I've never felt more completely adrift than when I see you on the slack or on the Twitter talking about what I think is probably destiny and you want people to help you fight somebody and then you're up all night 
and it, it sounds really absorbing. Yeah, like we talked about that on the latest ATP, and, and my point then was that like a lot of the a lot of destiny is the creation of new proper nouns. Like they create this game world and they give names to everything, and so it's just it's just wall to wall proper nouns for everything for every aspect of the game. And a lot <laughs> George of proper, Lucas would love that. And a lot of the proper nouns can be shortened, so you can have you can exchange sentences with someone else who who is in into the game that consists almost entirely of shortened proper nouns with a few linking words and like maybe a verb in there somewhere. And it looks like gibberish because you have nothing to hang your hat on. Because it's, it's like, like you've got like jargon and then you've got like insider abbreviated jargon. Right. And then and then just tons of proper nouns. And so it's like you you find I, I recognize and the run and today and every other word in the sentence means nothing to me. So how can you make sense of what we're even talking about? Especially if the proper nouns like you can't is that a place? Is that a person? Is that a thing? Because they're all just made up words. But uh, it's fun. It's fun to watch, though. I mean, fun. it is. It's kind of. It's kind of joyful because I mean, that, that must be. That must be exciting. It must be very immersive. Yeah, and speaking of uh, uh, beating uh, Poe thirty five, uh, is this where you uh, fight Emil Zola? Is that what you were doing? Didn't you have Skolas, to fight Zola? Yeah, Skolas, I'll tell you. About, I'll tell you about that. That was one of the more exciting gaming experiences of my life. That five hours I spent between like nine thirty and two thirty at night. With uh, you said some, it was one of the most challenging things you've done, right? Or like the sense of victory was was great. It was pretty challenging. It was it, it was up there definitely. Uh, although I mean, it wasn't really that hard because it, basically that was my first try. I had never attempted it before. I attempted it, you know, several times during that five hour span, obviously, and accomplished it. So in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that hard. But it was very exciting. I will I will I will try to take you through. Uh, once you understand a little bit more about Destiny, I'll try to take you through that experience. Okay, I would enjoy that. It's on the list. God, the list is getting long, John. No, I'm taking things off. See, I'm deleting stuff. Yeah, I know. I, I saw how you were doing some archiving. Let me jump in here. Yeah. Um, you know, I, yeah, I want to talk to you about the meal planning. I think I can help with that. Um, I think we have to, with the time we have, I, I think we've got to jump into the big topic. Did you see my additions? I'm, I'm trying not to look too much about uh, this part of the outline because this is like notes for you to understand what you're going to ask me and I don't want to like spoil myself. Except for the note I just added, which is I could definitely use some help with this one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, because I don't know. You have, you have tons. Of, this is like a whole this outline is the, thing the single largest part of the entire outline. That's right. Isn't I think it? you'll be you'll be fine. I think you have somewhere to go here. Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, this is my first draft of the outline. So basically, this is a section that I'm calling, uh, it's got a red star and it's in bold and it's called 50 Shades of John Syracuse. And so here's the thesis statement I wrote tonight. Uh, I'm actually going to, I'm going to read this read into the record. Uh, my thesis, uh, John is fascinating and everybody says so. We see the results of his thinking. I want to explore the process of that thinking because John seems to have a very specific way of thinking. So what I'm talking about here is like, you know, it's sort of like Justice Potter and pornography. Like, I know it when I see it. You know a John Syracuse point where you're like, oh, man, geez, Louise, he just gave me some, some, some mind grapes about something that I had not ever thought of that way. How did he see something so clearly that I had not seen clearly, put it so lucidly? Like, there's those kinds of things. Because there's a lot of things. One reason I think that a lot of people, uh, you know, really uh, love your online presence is you are really good at taking something that seems kind of hopelessly knotted and complicated and then 
without taking out any of the nuance, you get really good at, you can explain something and you can put it in, in clear ways that anybody can understand. And I, I see I see you do something, I've followed you long enough and deeply enough that I see you doing something that I really admire in people. I'm reminded of the phrase, I think it was an old joke from a Comedy Central roast uh, of Milton Berle, who famously had the far and away the largest penis in the history of Hollywood. And, uh, and whenever uh, somebody would come up to Milton Berle and say, hey, you, you want to compare penis size? He would say, I'll just take out enough to beat you. And I think you do that. I think you bring out just enough technical detail to either answer the argument or to make the point. You don't feel the need to tell everybody everything you know about everything. And so anyway, that's a compliment, I hope. But what I'm trying to get at is like, I want to understand more about this, these various things I've kind of culled about you over time, because I think we all enjoy hearing you talk about things. We enjoy hearing the results of how your mind works. And to the extent possible, I would like to explore that. And I think I have some vectors in, I don't want to just read my outline, but okay, so that's, that's my general uh, opening statement. So don't you feel like you have some insight into the process? Because podcasting is all about the process. Like I'm not coming into podcasts, almost in any case, with any finished thoughts about anything. I'm working it out in real time. Like that's, that's what I'm doing on podcasts. When I'm writing most of the time, I, I'm trying to work it out. And when I have it worked out, I write down what I've worked out. But in podcasting, it's just this, you're seeing the process. Yes. I'm trying to, th- I, I'm, I can't think of any of the dozens of things that I could use of example, as examples. Um, but whether it's talking about the need to archive the highest possible quality version of the original Star Wars, whether it's talking about the decision about what chipset is going to be in a given thing, deciding how we should try and um, participate in emerging civil and social rights issues, you have a uh, an uncanny ability to cut through a lot of the emotional clutter that most of us unintentionally use to make a decision, to get to something sometimes incredibly obvious that's right in plain sight, and then explain that without actually seeming, without without seeming like necessarily an advocate. Like you are one of the few people I know who can talk a lot about technology, especially Apple, especially Apple technology, but you don't come off as an Apple booster nor an Apple naysayer. You come off as somebody who just goes, well, you're like like the world's greatest Apple attorney. Like you just say, here's the stuff that has all been entered into evidence. If this is all the evidence we have, well, then clearly this is the conclusion we must draw. And I, I don't see that many people doing that well. And I, I admire it and I aspire to it. And so I want to learn more about how you got that way. Yeah, I think in the case of podcasting, I think sometimes I cheat a little bit, like hypercritical was a little bit cheating because a lot of that was dumping out of things that I had thought about in the past, like that I already had some kind of form thought on it. But that that went away pretty quickly. Like by the time I was talking about patents and hypercritical, I was working that out in real time, right? There wasn't wasn't a lot of, you know, especially things like positions that have evolved, like because I positioned on patents, I think I talked about, like has had changed in the years leading up to hypercritical and, you know, being forced to sort of work it out in real time on the air, you know, shifted things farther. Uh, and, and like I said, the, the social issues that we've talked about on ATP a little bit and stuff, that is even fresher. Like I've had no time to work that out. Like it's just been sort of stewing in things and just, just, just working it out. But uh, yeah, so there's no, there's no uh, trick behind that. The process is kind of uh, what you see it is, but. Uh, yeah, but I mean, Anybody who has a skill, as somebody who has a handful of, of small, not particularly interesting skills, any of the skills that we've gotten good at until they, in the parlance, 
uh, we can make it look like it's easy. Uh, that some of those, some of the most amazing skills people have are the ones where other people look at it and go, wow, it's, it seems like you probably never sucked at this. It oh. seems like, well, no, I'm, I'm just saying, you know, from the outside and I, I'm, I'm bringing this straight back, you know, uh, I'm reluctant to bring this up, but like, for example, when I had that big bust of gut post about my book exploding and we talked about it on back to work, you asked two of the most provocative, or at least one or two of the most provocative questions that anybody in the audience asked. And they were really, really good. And I mean, we we're already kind of like internet pals, but like you didn't feel any need to pull a punch. And like, you, I don't remember what they were. Was I rude? I don't remember. <laughs> you were not, you're not rude at all. But, all but right. I, what, all I'm trying to say is though, okay, so for example, let's look at Star Wars. Um, I think one of them, it's hard to say what my favorite hypercritical is. I love the hypercritical about the Walt, the two about the Walter Isaacson book. Those were a tour de force. But I also really like the one where you talked about the need, why you think there's a need to get a clean copy of Star Wars you know, preserved. And what was great about that though, is like, you were like, did you ever see the movie Cyrano with, um, uh, Jose Ferrer? All I got is Roxanne with Steve Martin. Um, there's a similar scene, but there's a, a, an, oh, I'll put it in notes, but there's an unmissable scene in Cyrano where he's at the very beginning of the movie, he's in the theater and one of the fancy guys, you know, cause he's kind of like the Han Solo of the, uh, sword fighting crowd. And uh, this guy comes up to him and he says, I'm going to go take this man down. Look at him. He doesn't even wear any ribbons. And like he's going to, he walks up to Cyrano and he goes, Cyrano, and he says, you, sir, have a rather large nose. And Cyrano is like, rather large. This is like, is there anything else? And then he proceeds to sword fight the shit out of this guy while composing a ballad about all of the different insults that he could have used to insult Cyrano better. It's one of the greatest scenes in film. So when you do Star Trek, you could be me and sit there and cry and talk about childhood and family and how you're ruining my childhood with Star Wars like anybody on the internet would do. But despite the fact that you probably like The Empire Strikes Back more than anybody I know, had the ability to bracket your own personal feelings about that to talk about it on a different level without having that intrude on the logical argument that you were making. I think that's extremely difficult for most people to do. I think you do it very well. And I want to, ex- I want to explore the road that got you to having that kind of critical mind. Uh, I think there's one aspect of that is explainable in a sound bitey type of thing, like nugget. And that is my, my belief. And this probably, I probably heard some teacher or somebody say this when I was young or whatever, that if you can't explain something, you don't understand it. Um, and that, that comes up even in my original hypercritical post on ours. Like, there's lots of people who feel strongly about something or think they understand something but cannot explain it. And part of that is like, you know, they call it being articulate or whatever. Like, a lot of it is like someone may understand something but they would have difficulty writing it down. So sometimes there's, there's a barrier between like what people think internally, what people can say, and then what people can write. Everyone, we've all met some people like that. Where it's like, and we're all like that to some degree where it's easier to talk about something than it is to write it down. Right. So that's mm-hmm. one barrier. It's like, OK, well, I understand it and I can explain it to you verbally. But when I try to write it out, it doesn't work because they're just not experienced writers. They don't have a lot of experience, you know, that, that it doesn't connect all the way down. They don't have experience turning their thoughts into words, into sentences that that it correctly express their thoughts. That's what being a writer is about. It's a difficult job or else we would all be writers. Right. Um, and it takes practice. OK. But the other thing is take writing out of the equation. A lot of people really feel that they understand something um at a deep fundamental level or have a strongly held opinion but cannot explain it 
Like they, they C- cannot explain why they feel that way or, or that the topic is just, what it is. Just can't, can't even explain what they mean half the time. They'll say, I really believe that X is Y or uh, X should totally Y. I'm like, what do you so even like, mean like by that? Introducing like, different kinds of um, like, unintentionally bringing in like logical fallacies. Not even just like, what, what do you even, I heard one earlier today. I'm like, I, I just, I just think to myself, like if you, if you ask someone to, so many things are explainable in a sentence that states your position. And it's like, what do you actually mean by that? And it's like, well, but we all we all use this sentence to, you know, it's it's a side of a debate, and I'm on that side, and I use the sentence like, no, but what do you really mean? Like, they just cannot explain. I saw it. I saw it this you know. week, or, or yeah, earlier this week. You, where somebody was getting all mad about ATP and the change in tone of the show, I guess, and. They made one of those kind of, you know, and hero type statements about, you know, <laughs> about the show. And you said something along the lines of, well, specifically, what are you talking about? <laughs> and their response was it just kind of like, you know, <clears throat> you know, just, well, you know, the, 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 the tone of this is just, you know, you know what I'm talking about? The thread you were in where you kept uh, ending. Oh, yeah, no, the thing that And I you would end them all with a smiley. No, but you weren't being provocative. You were just saying, okay, well, t- tell me more about what you mean. Give yeah, me an yeah. example of what you're talking about. I can't respond to this general idea that, like, <laughs> your opinion about the show has changed and now I should feel bad. It's just a, it's just a malaise, really. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> like, but see, that's the, that's the thing about, uh, I'm sometimes doing that to other people to force them. What I'm often doing when I am probing other people like that is to force them to think about their own position because a lot of people will vehemently support a sentence that that they've heard other people say that they think is the position they hold but if asked to break it down and say what does that really mean they will be forced to confront the underlying assumptions and like the consequences and say is this really what i think like they'll be forced to break it down and that's what i'm doing to myself on everything that i think about it's not just like i don't just decide uh you know uh apple really should uh you know do such and such and it's like why and just say i'm firmly believed then i'll just argue for it and argue for it. it's like well what does that mean why why are they why have they not done it already why do you think they should do it what would be the consequences of doing it? like you have to be able to explain yourself you have to be able to explain understand why you think the things you think and this is before we even get into feelings just you know okay. intellectual positions like political matters or whatever but but that's but isn't that isn't that heavily involved in a lot of ways is that i mean it just seems like when when people are struggling what you see two people on two sides of an argument, often a very trivial argument, and you can just, I just feel like sometimes I get the sense that it's impossible for them to separate uh, some incredibly different things that they think are the same thing, which is, and let's let's say, for example, uh, Apple, the products, the people who work there, my feeling about them, and then my meta-feeling about how I feel about other people who disagree with me. Like, where it all becomes this big wad to where if somebody says something about Tim Cook or whatever, you end up having an incredibly fast one, ends up having a very fast and very pointed opinion because all of those things feel like they're all part of the same big ball of bubblegum. Yeah, and, and most of the time if someone takes a position that I'm on the other side of, my go-to move is to merely keep asking them questions about their position right just keep asking clarifying questions not as like it's a trick as a trap or anything like that just to make them pin down what they and it's the same i do it to you on this podcast or whatever like it's easy to to make a like 
you know, right. Are, are uh, you are you really seeing the movie, or are you thinking about the people you don't like who talk about Fight Club? Yeah, or, and it, whatever. Like to just pin it down, and it's hard. Like sometimes because you you ask people these probing questions, and they're like, you just want to restate your sort of deeply held belief in the form that you are used to thinking about it in your own head, right? But to really pin it down, it's like, well, but this is what happens. And, and, you know, if, and I imagine this is what happens in people's heads. And same thing with me, you know, when you're trying to pin down what you're thinking, you're like, well, you know, expand that out into two, expand that one sentence out into three sentences that explain it. Well, it's not really this. And well, it's not really that. Like, and you think, oh, you're trying to trick me into picking like a more extreme or a word or the word that like, well, I mean, again, it's the same process as writing. When I'm writing, I'm like, what do I actually mean? Like I'm, word choice just kills me in writing. That's why I take forever to write. It's like, what, what, what do you actually mean by this? Expand it out into four sentences that very clearly in a straightforward way say exactly what you think. Because the placeholder sentence, the sentinel sentence, the sentence is like, it's not a dog whistle, but it's like the thing that everyone reads and go, oh, I know what that guy's think. Well, do you? Do you really know what that means? Like, do you, do you actually understand all the consequences of it? So that process is always going on within me. It's why very often, if you hear me being incoherent on a, on a podcast, it's because I'm still working through that process and I haven't nailed it down. I don't even, I don't even really understand the point I'm making. I don't understand it. Like, and I just, I don't know how to, whereas if you hear me say three sentences that seem like they really pin the thing down, it's because I've figured out this is what I mean when I, it doesn't mean I'm right. It just means like I, I've, I've figured out the pin down the argument to the point where I can explain it to someone else. This is very difficult to talk about in, in, in vague terms, but I'm, I'm so different from you, but I think I have a, a similar thing where like, I, f- I feel like as I'm as I'm sometimes my my brain and my mouth and my emotions and all those things work at different speeds, obviously. But one thing is I end up doing this incredibly confusing like cubist 3D printing of an idea because I feel myself uh, like having a feeling that takes me in this direction, having uh, a good soundbite about it over here, having an observation that gets it pretty correctly over here. While over here, there's two on the other side, there's these two other guys going, yeah, but yeah, but. And so the problem is those sometimes like for myself, like those all want to kind of come out in the same way because they're all a slightly different version of the truth. Uh, to my truth, you know what I mean? And I think sometimes, like, you see, it, so one struggles to slow down and go, okay, like, what's the one thing to say here? And, like, if I choose this word wrong, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the wrong notion of what it is I'm really trying to say and cut off the direction into this other area. And it's kind of crippling once you start really thinking about it. Yeah, and that shows that you haven't actually figured out what you think yet, right? I mean, it, it, here's, I'm trying to pick well, a I know, I know what domain. I, th- I know what I think a lot of the time. I just, I'm not sure what I want to say because once I figure out what I want to say, <laughs> well, maybe you're right. That's when I realize, ah, but like, once- it's more like you have a notion. You have, you have not going to say it's a, yeah. you know, you, like, and, and it doesn't mean, and again, it doesn't mean it does nothing to do with right or wrong. It just means like figuring out where you actually lie down. It's, it's how about doing a project plan? It's like, if, if you have the project plan, it's like, we're going to build the house. You don't know what the hell you're going to do until oh, you break it down great into, mu- into much smaller example. steps. And so you could be like, I totally want to, I'm going to build this house. This is the thing we're going to do. And it's like, well, so what does that involve? And you have to just pin it down to the smallest thing. And then, you know, okay, that's what building a house is like. And maybe you're, maybe you're like, actually, we're not going to build a house because that sounds really hard. Like you may change your mind once you see all the pieces. Well, you realize building a house isn't the thing that actually needs to be done. You would have loved my boss, I think, or you would have appreciated or respected my boss at my first dot-com job because I came into it and I was, as you know, I don't have a deeply technical background. I picked up the skills to do web stuff you know, kind of in the in those weird backdoor ways we did in the '90s, but I got seasoning. a job. Hmm? Seasoning, seasoning. Yeah, you're a seasoned technologist. <laughs> That's true. I've been at it. I've been at it for a long time now, but it was it was such an interesting rom com that I had because I got hired. My friend Pete hired me to come in, got me hired at this job, 
And it was a, a company doing like just straightforward, just grinding like ham and egg cold fusion programming. Like we here is the functional code. Here is the database. This stuff gets pulled out. Everything's incredibly sane about the way we do this. It's a very conservative in a good way, very conservative environment. Like they weren't a bunch of cowboys. Like nobody, nobody was, you know what I mean? For the era, it was actually incredibly sane. But I came in there and I was like, I was a douche. Like I was, I came in and I thought I was going to show these guys, all the, all the pages were just incredibly ugly. And I eventually learned they kind of wanted me there, I think mostly for production graphics because they didn't want to have to do that stuff. They wanted people to write the HTML to wrap around the cold fusion. But Something that happened after about the first week of working with this boss, this guy Richard, is so I, I would go in there and I go, "Hey, you know, um, it'd be really great if we could do something with a cookie, where you know people's searches can be remembered, and maybe we do like a myhomes.com. So you know, if you like, let, let me know when like if two bathrooms uh, becomes available in this price range, can we do that?" And he goes, yeah, "Probably." just uh, write something up and define the functionality. And I go, oh, that's pretty simple. Like you just, you get a cookie or whatever. And like, okay, all right. No, no, seriously, we could, we could certainly look at it at the next meeting, like define the functionality. And I'd be like, well, no, no, I mean, I'm defining the function. I'm telling you, I hope you're getting the, the joke here. It's like, I would go like, well, yeah, but it does this. And he would go, okay, so define the functionality. I'd say, Richard, Richard, it's really not that complicated. If I want to see, if I want to see when a house comes on the market that's under $200,000 that has more than two bathrooms, like, send me an alert. Okay. Uh, what if there's no results for that? I was like, what do you mean? What if, what if there's no results for that? He goes, well, like, what, what happens? Or like, what if somebody searches for this from this page? Like, which part, what, should, we, should we remember the search they did or this other search? He just, it made me so goddamn angry. And it took about a month and a half of that before I realized what he was really teaching me, which was that he was not going to put the resources of his group on the line, to, he protected that group by keeping them away from any bozo who came in and asked them to write a check that he was not prepared to cash, right? This, I'm guessing this is the kind of thing that you're pretty good at. He, he taught me the notion of pushback. He taught me the notion of making sure that somebody understands the idea that they want you to take care of just this, which became huge for me in project management is like understanding, like vetting that person that they understand what it is they're asking for. Because when they, when they say, let's get the house fixed, quote unquote. Has anybody actually really sat down and broken down the costs and time in counting for the, the seasons, accounting for Christmas, right? All that stuff nobody ever wants to think about because when you actually sit down and break it down, like it's gonna, it's gonna be two to 10 times more complicated than anybody thinks. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by 1Password from Agile Bits. You can learn more about 1Password right now by visiting agilebits.com slash 1Password. That's O-N-E password. Friends, this one is a flat-out no-brainer. You need this app. For anyone listening to this show, you know that 1Password is an essential piece of software. In the digital world we live in, it can be way too easy to just keep reusing the same passwords all over the place. And these days, there are stories each week about sites being hacked and user information being compromised. you got to get away from that. A good 1Password user, a smart 1Password user, will not have to worry about any of that stuff. So here's what you get. 1Password is an app that is available for the Mac, OS X, iOS, Android, and Windows. And it will help you create unique and super strong passwords for all of the sites that you visit and then keep them safe and easily available for you. It's magic. Your passwords are stored in an encrypted file on your device. 
and then you can sync those together with Dropbox, iCloud, or locally via Wi-Fi Sync. This keeps all of your passwords with you wherever you go. What's cool is you can also store lots of other stuff that you want to keep private in one password, stuff like your credit card numbers, bank account information, ID documents, secure notes, so much more. And the only way to get to any of that information is by unlocking the app with your super secret master password, the titular one password. Now, keep in mind that your master password is not stored on a web server. This is your private password to unlock the app, giving you access to your own secure information. Here's, this is amazing. If you have an iOS device, you can even use your fingerprint to sign into 1Password with the use of Touch ID. This is just unbelievably useful. You won't believe you ever live without it. 1Password will also save you a ton of time because not only you no longer have to remember your passwords, you won't even have to type them. They have excellent extensions for your web browser that make it really easy to fill in the user account info and even credit card and billing information. You just go to the site you want, click the 1Password extension icon, and select the logon you want. It is that easy. They even have an extension for iOS that works with a bunch of awesome apps, including Safari and Chrome. There's also a fancy login creator in the latest iOS version. It supports hundreds of the most popular sites to make it incredibly simple to add your existing logins or create new ones with unique, strong passwords. They have the time-based one-time passwords, a new thing they're doing that's just amazing. I, I have to tell you, I, I kind of can't imagine living life without this app. The scary part is once you start using this app, you will never believe that you didn't use it because you're going to realize how bananas your life was before you started using it. So if you're not yet a 1Password user, if you're an animal, you got to change this right away. you got to go to agilebits.com slash 1Password. That's O-N-E password. To find out more, you can find 1Password on your app store of choice. Our thanks to AgileBits and 1Password for making this amazing product and for supporting reconcilable differences. Put passwords in their place with 1Password. That's basically the job of programming. Someone will say they want a, you know, a goddamn login page to quote the famous <laughs> song, and and like they they just want the thing. And someone's job is to instruct the computer, which knows nothing, the exact series of steps that have to be taken to do the thing. And so someone's going to have to figure out like program. There's no cheating in programming. Like you're gonna you're going to eventually figure out the steps like say that say your boss had said sure great go we're gonna do that the programmers would eventually have to make all the decisions that he's asking you to make now like so they would have to make those decisions and they'd be making them basically arbitrarily with no guidance or they would just be deciding on themselves so like they would be the ones designing this thing because they would say or like i said well what if they do it from this page well what if they do it that? what if there's no results here what if they've done this thing over here and that thing over here would it like they, they have to make choices there they they're going to write code that's going to have consequences and if you haven't thought about it beforehand uh it doesn't make any difference and, and speaking of programming the other thing i think of like in terms of explaining this happens all the time in programming uh you know again getting back to the, if you can't explain it you don't understand it very often in programming there's these things that people will say from their experience like to you know to give a pearl example uh, you always got to call srand before you call rand. Uh, everybody knows that, right? And then someone will be like, oh, well, actually, you should never call srand before we call rand. People who've been telling you that you always have to call it are wrong. Really, the rule is that you should never call it. And that seems like two positions. Uh, and you're like, one of those is probably right, or maybe neither is right, and you have to sometimes call it or whatever. But it's like, anyone who says anything like that, you would probe them and say, all right, so I always have to call it. Why do I always have to call it? Well, that's just what you have to do. Yeah, but why? Why do I always... Like, it's not a... It's, it's a... It's just a man-made thing. It's not like some sort of weird mystery. Well, if you don't call it and you call it Rand, you'll always get the same number, will you? Well, let's test that. 
Uh, and then, then they they start to get up, you know, like, well, don't go and test. It's like, well, we're right here. Let's just do it. Oh, they don't yet understand the, the relationship between S. Rand and Rand and Pearl, which admittedly is, is weird and complicated. Under what circumstances should you call S. Rand? What, you have to know how the whole thing works. And it's like plenty of people can espouse information telling some uh, younger programmer, make sure you always call S. Rand before you call Rand. And they can easily tell you, don't listen to that guy. You should not call S. Rand before you call Rand neither one of them really understands it because they can't explain it if that young programmer was saying but why but why why how do these things work together explain it to me and they'll realize oh i can't explain it all i have is this it's not cargo cult but it's more like i have this practice that i've learned through supposed bitter experience that if i, I didn't do this one time and something didn't work and i did do it then it did work very often in programming you can sort of learn that way where basically I tried this one thing and it didn't work or this bug happened and then I did this other thing that the bug was fixed and come away from that with like a, a rule or a heuristic or something you think is an unwritten law without actually understanding the underlying. This is a silly, very simple example for people who knows, but I don't, think, I, don't think, I don't think it is. I, I uh, think the relationship. And yeah. so it's like, can you actually explain this? Do you understand it? It's like, no, I just have a thing that I feel that may actually be right or may actually be wrong. Doesn't really matter. It's just that, you know, you, you can't. Like the, the probing question, that is the key. You ask yourself the probing question, ask the other people the probing questions. And again, like when, when I'm, you know, debating somebody who I think is just totally in the wrong, what I'm trying to do is this judo thing, which never works because I don't know why I bother doing this, but it never <laughs> works. But I'm trying to get them to think about their own position to the point where they, where they confront the, what I think absurd uh, underlying assumption or consequence of their position is. Like, just, just bring them there. But that would mean, but that would mean, but that would mean. And I'm hoping they'll get to that one and be like, holy cow, that is ridiculous. In reality, they get to that one, they just whiz right past it because they don't think it's ridiculous, which is the whole... But sometimes they haven't even confronted the underlying assumption. So that that is one aspect of, of my model. Uh, if if you can't explain it, you don't understand it. Hey, Kurt, Vonnegut, Kurt Vonnegut says, anybody who said, anybody who can't explain what they do for a living to a 10-year-old is a charlatan. Which, you know, is a, is a big statement, but I think it's a really interesting idea, you know? The other one you make me think of, just in, in brief, is that I've struggled with is, um, you know, what's, what's one of the first things you tell a kid, like, once they're old enough to be in the world on some level and to be able to understand language? What's, what's the phrase you tell every little kid? Don't talk to strangers. And so that, that to me, is the, what is it, RAND and SRAND thing, where you're like, well, okay, so I've just told my kid, Right. Don't talk. No, let's leave out the never. Don't talk to strangers. Okay. So if I've been really effective at that, I have now, if, I, if I've been great at that and I've just underscored it every day and it's part of our morning ritual and our scrum, is we're going to talk about don't talk to strangers? Well, let's just run through some examples of that. <clears throat> if somebody that, uh, that your father has just introduced you to as an old friend says, hi, do you talk to them? Well, are they a stranger? Well, it qualifies as a stranger. Wait a minute, that's really, you're overcomplicating this. Well, okay. Like, if you're lost in Target, should you just not talk to anybody, even a policeman who's trying to help you? Like, that, there's, that, that, that is an interesting heuristic for a kid, like, from another generation. But, like, that's terrible advice to give a kid. Don't talk to strangers. I mean, the, the, in, these, these, I, the imagined intent of it is very good-hearted. You don't want your kid ending up in a, in a white van. But, like, <laughs> but an implementation for a little kid's brain, like what message are they going to take away from that? Is that the world is scary, and in order to make my parents happy, I should basically become like a weird loner. 
And I got kids don't listen to you anyway. But yeah, explaining it to kids, that's a good opportunity to realize the places where you, the kids are great at, at oh, they're making per- you realize the things, for that, this. <laughs> the things that you haven't thought about because you're forced to explain it. Sometimes with the strangers thing, the difficulty of explaining, I feel like I can explain the strangers things to kids, but you don't want to say certain things to kids. So you're like, well, I could explain this to you accurately, but I may scar you for life. And so I'm not going to do that. So you have to find a way to you know but other cases you realize you just haven't thought about it enough like you know even just simple like that's why youtube is great or whatever you could ask like why is the sky blue and you want to give the actual explanation you can make up some stuff about water droplets and and light bending into different angles with different wavelengths and stuff but it's it's so much better to have just like the well, real don't, answer don't talk to strangers in that case is just kind of an example of a bad management philosophy because like like i kind of beat on about with back to work. I think a lot of managers tend to prefer things that are easier to manage than are actually effective. So, you know, here's one. How about this? Rather than don't talk to strangers. Hey, if you're ever lost at Target, ask somebody in a red shirt with a badge for help or go find uh, a woman who has several kids with her and ask her for help. That's well, that's a lot longer and a lot more complicated, but that's an actual effect. That's an effective way. To- or, we, or at least we think it's effective because... I'll give an example <laughs> from the age my kids finally got old enough that I felt like I could go into the shower when I was the only adult home with them right it's like you know whatever you're you're 11 years old you're 8 years old whatever age you, you feel I don't even know like I, I'm going to go into the shower now oh my god sometimes the, only, the shower is all that keeps me sane during the day <laughs> I, I'm the only adult in the house the directive when I go into the shower is don't answer the door <laughs> that's your that's your admonition Right. And, how much I mean, how much random door stuff do you get in your neighborhood? Very, very little. Almost <laughs> none. Right? That is so weird. But it's like, basically, you're going to be unsupervised. I'm going to be in the shower. The water is running. I can't hear you. Simple admonition is don't answer the door. I say this knowing full well that none of my kids are ever going to listen to me. And I have proof of this. Very often, I am in the shower. Someone comes to the door. My daughter will answer the door. She will always answer the door. I've been telling her not to answer the door. Like the whole idea that like you could come up with something you can say to your kids and that they will listen to you is another fantasy of parenting. Like hey, seriously, it's I have been consistent. I've always said don't answer the door. Sometimes I've gone over it before going in. You know, don't answer the door means you know instructions. When the doorbell rings, you have two choices. You can either sit here and do nothing, or you can come upstairs to the shower and tell me the doorbell ring. Those are your options. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Doorbell <laughs> rings, she runs right to the door and opens it. If anyone wants to snatch her, she's there for the taking. You know what you need to do? The word you, I say. you need to run a you need, <laughs> you need to run a George Bluth on them. You I need, don't. No, don't and do that. that's why you never open the door. Yeah, and like, but that's yeah. That that the kid angle throws a monkey wrench in everything. But it's, seriously, kids will ask you things, and uh, like, even just uh, facts, things are easy, right? So the kids ask well, well, you. They, they, or they can you, be they can be less complicated, but they're not always easy. Yeah, right? they'll lead you into like. Uh, I would wager that most adults do not know what makes winter and summer, what makes the seasons. On well, I'm talking more like why why does Lorelai Gilmore uh, have a 16 year old daughter and she's only 32. <laughs> And why is that a big deal when they go and talk to the grandparents and they want to make sure that Rory goes to a good school and doesn't end yeah, up like Lorelai? That gets more into the uncomfortable questions. But the, this, I think we're I think we're right on the edge with that one. <laughs> the, the straight up science things are very much the case where parents will fake it. They'll be like, "Oh, something, something, sun, it's seasons, blue because of water in the sky." <laughs> right? Yeah. Like right. It's it just and that's fine. Like you don't have to. You're, I'm not saying you have to understand everything, but. 
re- parents recognize when the kids ask a question that they're like, you know what? I don't know the answer to it. I don't care what the answer is. If you care what the answer is, you should look it up. It's part of being growing is that you should learn how to like look things up. You've got the internet. Just ask Siri. She'll tell you or whatever. But that's a case where people will know that they don't know. But in many other things that people have strongly held beliefs about, uh, even, you know, just something as simple like Apple hatred or whatever, they've never really thought about it to a level where they understand uh, where it's coming from. That, and that gets into the feeling thing. Okay, l- let me get us back on track. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to take us off track. So um, I, have, I have some angles into this. And I, as I said, I would like your help with this. I think I need to break this into a lot of different topics. But one, let me ask you this before I get to engineer stuff. Um, were you ever in forensics? Did you do debate and stuff like that? No, never did. It's really surprising to me. I don't know if they even had it in my school. I don't remember. I don't remember knowing anybody. I don't think we had a debate team. If, if we, we did, had it at our high school, it. it was like third or fourth tier. I don't remember them even having, having a yearbook picture. Like I don't. I don't. I don't think we had it. It seems like something I would remember, but who knows? I should go look at my yearbook. Maybe there is a debate team picture. But anyway, I was not on it. Because uh, you seem like somebody who would thrive in an environment like that. Of like, okay. Here is your case. It doesn't matter whether you agree with it or not. I just need you to make a case for this. Like you seem like you would be very good at that. I think I would be good at it today. Uh, Back then, I think it was probably too much like schoolwork that I would never (laughs) volunteer (laughs) to do more of. Because you were well, you were a prickly, a prickly loner. (laughs) Uh, And I just hated schoolwork. I did not want to do schoolwork. That's so interesting. Even in science and math. Well, I I mean, I liked writing uh, and I like listening in science class. I didn't like doing homework in anything. Uh, I guess I guess writing counts as homework. I did like writing English papers. Huh. Uh, what what track were you on for math in uh, in high school? Like whatever, what, like the the, the advanced, the advanced, so, advanced everything. So you had calculus in in twelfth grade. I don't remember when I had calculus, but yeah, I did. We had all the AP tests, like whatever whatever the nerd track is. That's the track I was. But on. you took the highest math and you did okay at it. Yeah. But you didn't like it. Yeah, I'm not very good at math. I did okay. Well, okay is exactly how I did. Well, here's, what I, here's, my, here's one of my inroads that I'm ready to be uh, disabused of, because this is a line in here. Uh, you, you are technically an engineer, right? I mean, you, you went to engineering uh, school, right? I asked Dr. Drang about that. I have an engineering degree. But I mean, you studied physics. You studied... Yes. So you, I mean, you, you took... You, you had, I understand you're not Dr. Trang, but I mean, like, you're, you're not going to, like, ex- be able to explain exactly why the plane door broke that way on that day. But, uh, but you have an engineering background, right? Yeah, I have an engineering degree, and to, to get an engineering degree at most schools, including BU where I went, you end up taking just, I, I took a lot of math a lot of physics, way more than I think was necessary for any human being to take, really. Like, uh, just mechanical engineering, like the whole suite of just engineering things, and also some computer crap. So technically, my degree is computer engineering, which was basically electrical engineering with some CS courses thrown in. Uh, but that, my it's one like point as of as pride... like being a podiatrist is to an MD, right? Yeah, but yeah, my one point of pride that I have on, on engineering is, that, well, you may not call me engineer, because basically I'm a programmer. That's what I call myself when I say, what do you do for a living? Um is that I did go through an engineering program and I, you know, took all those courses and I did okay, pretty okay in all those courses. And I feel like I could have gone off in any direction. I could have been a mechanical engineer, which right. I think is the engineering course that I did the best in. Maybe I couldn't have been a physics because by the end of physics, my brain was exploding with Greek symbols. But yeah, I, you know, I did okay <laughs> in all you. the topics, right? Um, and so I'm going to say, look, I didn't go, I didn't go through four years of a, a generic undergraduate engineering degree to not be called an engineer. Uh, but you know, whatever. I'm a programmer. Uh, and so you saw the the question under my in- engineer for life section uh, is engineering the life you chose or the life that chose you. 
do you do you think i mean what is the extent to which and maybe and maybe i might be building a straw man about what i think an engineer is but i think of an engineer as being somebody who you know one of those one of those things you hear tossed around is that you know basically you know everything comes down comes down to math and, and, and physics. And like, it just seems like in a mechanical, being able to do a few semesters of mechanical engineering must make you adopt a certain approach to thinking about stuff. I, I can't imagine that people who don't have the right comportment for that kind of track could survive it. In the same way that maybe in a slightly similar way to how like, you'd have to really want to be an MD. You'd have to really want to do a residency. Like the, 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 you know, like my wife works with the residents. And like just what those people go through is just staggering to me. I know you haven't gone through that much, but you know, do, do you see my line of questioning here? Like it seems to me you think like an engineer in a lot of ways. And I'm wondering like, did you become an engineer because that's how you think? Or what's the relationship? Well, you're right in that engineering, you know, obviously it's not the same as like medical school, whatever. It's just an undergraduate degree. But uh, it's one of the majors where a lot of people sign up for it. And by the second year, a lot of those people are gone because I mean, they, I don't know if they do it on purpose to try to scare of, people. Because of workload? Because the courses are too hard, like, you know, or, or they find it's not what they thought it was going to be or whatever. Like they change majors. It's like there are, you know, there are weed out courses in every major, but engineering in particular has a high, at least in the school that I went to, high attrition rate very early on. Right? We're like, you know what? F this. I'm not, you know, and, and in the grand scheme of things, like it's, it depends on what you consider hard work. And that gets to, you know, because English class, you know, uh, liberal arts classes may have you reading lots of books and writing papers and to some other people that's torture, right? But getting back to your, your question, I definitely think that I had a predisposition disposition to this. I, I never uh, even considered a major other than engineering. Uh, and there's a certain kind of engineering mindset that I have. You know, if are you the type of kid who took apart your parents' old blender, fished it out of the garbage and took it apart? Did you fashion your own weapons? Were you constantly trying to make mechanical traps and, uh, and, and pulleys and conveyances in your backyard? Uh, did you try to carve things out of wood? Like, you know, just kind of you know, did you have a, a little bank of tiny screws and nuts and a tool set in your room? Like these are all sort of engineering type things, a separate, totally separate from the computer things. If I had been born before computers were invented, you know, did you have an erector set? Did you love Legos? Like just sort of building things, learning things, how things work. Uh, and the scientific mindset you're watching, you know, watching PBS, watching Nova, learning about how the universe works, you know, just like I was like that from the youngest possible age that I can remember, right? Mm -hmm. So I was definitely headed towards uh, an engineering major, uh, even if you know my career ended up not doing anything having to do with like building things. All about you know just pushing little keys on a keyboard, right? That's where I ended up. But it was definitely my mindset. I don't think that's the only path to engineering. You could be you could end up in engineering with different kinds of. But this I think this I am the stereotypical sort of young nerd. Uh, intellectually curious interested in building things interested in other things that other people have built interest interested in the pure science behind the things that you build so yeah i was i was definitely an engineer from the start and the reason i, I bring in the forensics idea is because i don't know uh I, I there's there's something to some combination i don't know i guess there's something to this of like what i what i get out of you or out of your your thinking process is um, and I don't mean this to sound aggressive because I don't think you put this aggressively, but I, I feel like there's always this implicit like, okay, show your work, right? Down, you know, and certainly that goes to things like, well, you just made this really broad statement 
with you know kind of abstract nouns in it like tell me in the three sentences like what that really means to you like can you can you make a persuasive argument about for what that thing means in, in a handful of sentences so i mean like I guess what I get out of the engineering part is not just not just that somebody has an affinity or skill for doing difficult math or for being able to to handle the pressure of these what would to me be impossibly abstract word problems about life, but that like you actually are kind of driven to the idea that there is an answer to this and there might even be a, a better answer to that the, the higher up you go in that 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 seems like that really appeals to a certain kind of personality. Is that there, there? There is an answer to this, and the an, the best answer we'll get is whoever makes the best mathematical case for why that is. Well, I, there's a difference in like debates where you're taking positions and trying to figure them out. Is that the, uh, there's a line that you cross where, and people who are nerds in school have experience with this, where you may be right, but everyone else thinks you're wrong because the way you win arguments in real life is you know appeal to emotion essentially. That's, you know, or appeal to authority, right? Those are the winning arguments in real life, right? And it's cold comfort that you may actually be technically right. So the world of science and engineering is like technically right is right. There is no appeal to emotion. There is no appeal to authority. Well, a little bit in pure science. But anyway, um, (laughs) that's that is a comforting place to be. Um, And that's why many people who are have this sort of engineering mindset are not good debaters because they don't, you know, and the, the only way you can use these oh, because tools they, they to, give you the answer and go well that's the answer and that's it there's no there's no persuasion to it or yeah, they or they can't like the other person makes some some grand gesture that people find you know like they just go right for the heartstrings and you have what how your attempt to combat that plays into their trap by making you seem heartless you know or whatever and no, no one wants to know the actual truth like that is that's that's the the truth the the upshot of most of the things that, that people argue about is that either there is no right or wrong, or if there is, it doesn't matter because it's a different problem. You have to go. Uh, you have to go two more meta levels up, where you're like, "What I'm trying to do is to figure out what I have to do to convince people in a way that they don't feel like they're being convinced." Like you, you have to like attack the tertiary effects and come in from like the side, and like it's it's all about like you know the the whole theory that like. Uh, the smartest the people who can figure out how to convince all the other people to do something the things they have to do to do that are very often just really strange and non-obvious and that that is their genius like uh, my genius is i can convince a whole bunch of other normal people to do what i want them to do using arguments that make no sense but i know that i know will induce the right result right i I think john roderick is struggling with this right now right it's just like what do I have to do to get all these people to put a checkbox next to my name versus what is actually sensible and right and an accurate representation of my position? And if those two things really are very different, I'm not getting elected. Yeah, he, he, he's I, I feel that same struggle where you're just feeling him having to struggle with like having to like be expected to fib his way through the swimsuit competition. And he's like... <laughs> Yeah, can't we can't we just <laughs> can't we just be gentlemen about this? Oh, oh yeah, I, I I don't want to turn this into a discussion of uh, of Roderick on the line, which is an amazing podcast that everyone should listen to. But the bit it's, where a, was... it's a pretty interesting time for him right now, and I I my heart really aches for him right now because I think he's he, and I I'm I've never been more proud of him because I think he's being very brave at a time that's extremely difficult for him. 
Yeah, and, and something that has come up on the past couple of shows has been uh, it originally came up was like the, the other political operatives uh, trying to express to him that who he hangs out with is more important than what he says <laughs> because we all know uh, that what we say are lies, <laughs> right? And and so like he very well addressed that side of it and how it was kind of like insulting and was like I I don't want to accept the fact that we're all liars and that what, who I hang out with has more. but like what I thought when I heard that was you've you've got that side of it down but the other side of it is a real thing like the power of social obligation that who you hang out with and who you are friends with does have an effect on you you can see all the bazillion experiments they do with like it's just so easy to induce social obligation and people will deny it up and down that they don't feel this real social obligation or they will feel it and think they're effectively counteracting it but it does exist it like it so takes so little to make people and, and again in all the experiments people will deny that this affected their thinking in any way but social obligation is a real thing. Hanging out with people is a real thing. I'm not saying like it, that it dominates in the way that these these political operatives seem to think it dominates or whatever. And I know nothing about actually getting elected because, again, <laughs> the truth of the matter uh, has very little bearing on what will make people vote for you. That's a whole other game that I don't know how to play. And maybe John is figuring out. But social obligation is real. And so that like that's another thing that that uh, another nuance of that discussion, if I was arguing that back and forth with them, if I was on the, the political operative side, I, you'd have to explain the, the power of social obligation. And like, you have to at least acknowledge that that's a real thing and not dismiss it out of hand and say, you're saying I'm a liar. I'm like, no, I think you're 100% telling the truth about what you think you're going to do. But social obligation can change your behavior in a way that you don't feel or notice. Right. Hmm. So that, that would be an example of trying trying to understand all sides of, a, of an issue. And I, obviously, I don't know enough about social obligation to explain it well. Here's me just trying to work it out in real time on the air. But like, you know, some some research may be required, but I'm, you know, that's that I think is a real thing. I've felt it myself. I've seen it in other people. I've uh, have vague memories of, of uh, experiments uh, related to that in uh, psychology classes and the few liberal arts things that I did take during school. Yeah, it's I mean, this is a, a simple example, but if you've ever done anything with user testing, do you guys do any user testing? Or, or yeah. it's, it's, there's something really um, humbling and incredibly informative about user testing. Um, because, I mean, whatever kind you do, and there's just some that are more useful than others, but there's something pretty amazing about watching somebody use your app. <laughs> because, like, as much as you think everything is incredibly obvious, and like we've, we've already explained that in the blah blah text, and this button is super clear, and obviously these three radio buttons, you know, and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But like, when you actually watch somebody do it, it's is it's incredibly humbling because like all of your best intentions and smarts go out the window when you see how a normal pr- person actually uses that. And it's not it's not that anybody's right or wrong; it's just reality. And, and it's like there's <laughs> you could make your case all day long to your blue in the face with diagrams and, you know, and uh, Tufty books. But like what actually happens when somebody uses uses your apps is the real tale of the tape. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, no, no plan survives contact with the user. <laughs> user testing is uh, definitely help. And, and even in that, like the whole thing, speaking of social obligation, how you conduct testing can have a profound effect on like you, you can be either consciously or unconsciously. Uh, biasing the results for the thing that you favor by, for example, standing over their shoulder while they do it. Oh, God. Or like, you know, just like, or, or constructing the test in such a way that they start off past the hurdle that, that they're probably going to get hung up on. Like all sorts of, it's, I mean, you know, that's, user testing is any kind of testing. You have to actually treat it like science and uh, it's really easy to screw up experiments by not uh, controlling well, for all the variables. Supposedly that's the secret of uh, counting horses. <laughs> <laughs> 
is is like you know like the circus horses who are able to count and, and answer questions is that they can actually the, even even a horse can be biased by noticing what their handler is doing right in the same way that like I heard a podcast this week that was really great about like the problem of um, um, dealing like just the horrible way we deal like you certainly read a million things about this but the horrible way that we deal with um, you know uh, witness uh, testimony uh, setting <laughs> setting aside for a moment how terrible anybody is at actually remembering an actual event. Like, you know, you've certainly seen a million documentaries about how bad we all are at that. But down to like these these basic systematic problems with how we identify. Uh, so so you, you didn't hear this podcast. It was probably, I forget, I forget what show it was. But there was a show this week where they were talking about like how, for example, like what is the way, like let's say there's been a purse snatching. And so what do you do? You put the person into the prowler and you drive them by and you say, do you see anybody at this scene here who looks like the, you know, you might start by saying like, well, can you identify who the person was? And they give this really vague description. You put them in the prowler, you drive them by the scene of the crime. There's one African-American guy on his stomach in handcuffs at the scene of the crime. And they say, do you see anybody here who looks like the purse snatcher? Can you guess who a lot of people identify as the purse snatcher? It's the guy on the ground. And then, and then later on, when you do a lineup, apparently just even having one person in the room, a cop in the room, who knows who in the lineup is the actual person will have an effect on who the person chooses. Down to st- stuff as obvious as, uh, I think it's number three. Um, ma'am? I just want to make absolutely sure that's who you think it is. Please take your time. We are in no rush here. Like, would the person say that if they had picked the perp? Right? That's the more obvious thing. I think it's with the horses, it could just be how they shift around in their clothing and you hear them behind you or like they cough or they don't reply immediately. Like it could be, you know, crazy, crazy signaling that you could be doing. Yeah, all kinds of stuff like that. Okay, I got us way off topic. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Hover. Hover is quite simply the best way to buy and manage domain names. It's the best place out there for buying a domain, and it's easily my favorite place for doing stuff with that domain once it's yours. Hover provides a simple, fast, and hassle-free method of buying domain names. You don't want to be faced with thousands of screens and a ton of add-ons and high prices. Registering a domain name at some places feels like you're kind of running a gauntlet. You're not going to get that with Hover. They make it so easy. You just go to Hover.com, you enter the phrase you want or some keywords, and Hover will find the best matches for you and show you a list of all the top-level domains that are available. Hover has all the TLDs that you would expect, things like .com, .co, and .me, but they also have all of the weird new TLDs like .cologne, .webcam, and .beer. You're welcome. Hover has recently lowered the prices on pretty much all of the 200 plus options that they have. For example, .com domains now start at just $12.99. And remember, that low price you pay for a domain still includes Whois privacy for free. As with all of Hover's domains, any, any that it'll work for, that Hover really believes that that is your information. You should keep it to yourself and they do that for you. Any domain that will let you have that private information, they cover for you. It's the best. Hover also has fantastic customer support. They have a no-hold, no-wait, no-transfer telephone support policy. That means when you call Hover, an actual person will pick up the phone and talk to you and get you any of the help that you need. 
Hover has so much great stuff. They have volume discounts if you're doing bulk domain renewals. You can get custom email addresses, storage, and forwarding. So much great stuff. So if you're in the market for some sweet new domains or you're ready to move your domains to a place that treats you like a professional, please do give Hover a try. You can get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for our program by going to Hover.com and using the special code CORRECTIONS at checkout. Our thanks to Hover for making pretty much everything about domains a breeze and for supporting reconcilable differences. Am I on the right track with this? I guess I guess what I'm trying to get at is like, and I don't know if this is this is anything that you can even even share with us, but like, there's you know, I what I'm what I'm having some struggle with is from the beginning of the program, is in the first episode, I feel like you ended up describing yourself as this very, um, just in my estimation of what you the way you described yourself, you seem very um, kind of uh, almost socially not not just socially awkward, almost like socially hostile toward other people, like not really sure how to deal with other people and the way you did deal with other people. You kind of couldn't help yourself from being really prickly and and, and difficult. And so, and now, so whatever, there's that John that you've described. And I don't know if you're a reliable witness, but there was that a long time ago. That was you. And now there's you today, which seems like you're certainly a super weirdo in your own way, but you you seem unusually like surprisingly well socialized and able to actually make cogent cases about things with people. So what I'm trying to figure out in some ways is what happened in between, what brought you to the point? Like, I feel like engineering was one route, but I want to understand more about like how you got to be, uh, how you are now, not just how you were then, but how you are now. I'm not sure if I'm even asking this well, but do you see the general direction of the question? Yeah. Like you used to be a big prickly wad of John, and now today you're somebody, you rarely seem genuinely miffed by people. Maybe you are and I don't see it, but like it does not deter your ability to still think lucidly and communicate lucidly about a topic. And I, th- I think that's one reason people like and admire your stuff so much is like you're always the smart guy in the room. And how did you get there from where you were then? Like what happened? Well, so there's, we have some other topics about social things that I think we'll get to involving... Uh, Is this the know, late, uh, late bloomer stuff? Social things and girls and stuff like that. And a lot of the, this uh, revolves around that. But uh, I can say that the I'm not actually so different as I was back then. Uh, it's easy in, in a podcast environment, I'm talking to people I know and like and I'm interested in. And it's like very different than the giant world full of strangers that I have to interact with. Uh, so that can give kind of a false impression. But I think... This relates that your your whole question relates to an item that you have in a bullet point here, which is I think I might have added this early on. I, uh, my mental model, uh, and I'm gonna start off by saying that models, the mental model, it's like any other model, like any other sort of scientific model. It may not and need not necessarily be what is actually going on. The whole point of a model is that it gives you a tool. It's a thought technology. It gives you a tool to uh to make sense of the world it doesn't mean that this is what's actually going on science has had many models for things like even just you know uh newtonian uh mechanics right like that's not actually what's going on but it's a pretty damn good model for certain scales for certain things given certain you know margin of error or whatever so i'm prefacing that by saying i understand that this mental model i'm about to describe probably has almost no bearing on the way brains actually work but I personally find it a useful model to help me make sense of what I'm thinking and, and making my way through the world, right? And the model is very simple. Um, 
so simple that it, again, it surely has no bearing on what's going on. Uh, it's that my brain has two parts. It has the rational part and it has the other part. And the rational part of the brain, everyone can relate to this, I think, of like something happens that is significant or upsetting or traumatic or exciting or whatever, whatever it is. It is a significant event. 25 years pass and you look back on that event, you have a better perspective on it because so much time has passed that hopefully a lot of the trauma or the excitement or whatever has drained out of it and you can look back on it and you can engage with that event in a way that you could not when you were sort of in the heat of the moment, right? That That is my attempt to explain to, to as like what, what the rational part of the brain is. Very often it means you have to get really far away from it, get your get your emotions out of it and just think about it. And it's easy to, to engage the rational part of your brain, for example, when thinking about things that are, don't involve you at all. Hypothetical problems, abstract things, like things that, you know, things that are completely made up, like a Santa's elf puzzle type thing. Like you can engage the rational part of your brain because there are no consequences for any other part of your brain. So that's one part of the brain is the rational part. And the other part is all the parts with the feelings and the reactions and so on and so forth. And I use this mental model because I've always felt that the rational part of my brain, probably since like mid to late adulthood, massively dominates the other part of the brain. That I'm able to engage it very close to the heat of the moment, like within hours or days, or sometimes immediately and sometimes preemptively, engage the rational part of my brain to win over the other part. Because the rational part will try to see things as they are and assess them with all the things that we we're talking about and try to understand them. Uh, and this is, this sort of is, uh, flies in the face of the other mental model that you hear so many times is like that we basically make our decisions based on our emotions and then, and then rationalize them with the rational part of our brain after the fact, like you, you just do what you're going to do. And then the rational part of your brain engages and explains to you in a convincing manner. Oh, really? I was thinking this. That's why I did that. And it's my model, like a, like a butler that comes in and cleans up after you. Right, exactly, right? And my mental model, which again, probably has no bearing on how things actually work, is that my rational part of the brain is constantly trying to suss out that thing. Like, are you are you just rationalizing something you did because of your feelings? Like, it's its job is to kill that other part. Its job is to, and, and again, this, this may have nothing to do with how my brain is actually working. All I'm saying is that this is the tool I use to try to figure things out. That I have to know which, are you thinking with the rational part of your brain? Is the rational part of your brain going to win? And this this is the tool that I use to manage myself. Like if something is super upsetting or whatever, I engage the rational part of my brain to try to try to like, to try to bring myself down, to try to say like, look, I know you're upset or whatever, but let's try to think about this and not do something stupid or think about what we did. What really happened there? What I know, I know you're angry at this person, but were you actually the one who was at fault there? Like just that is super important to me that the rational part of my brain is the part of my brain that has control. It's also sometimes scary that the rational part of my brain, because the rational part of your brain can come up with some crazy ass stuff. Right. But this is the model I use for, for everything. When I, I can tell you when I was in high school, the rational part of my brain was getting its ass kicked. <laughs> right, <laughs> like it, right. I don't even know if it was there. Like it was just, cause it e was, even if you were right, you were still wrong. It was massively overmatched by like just, you know, puberty, just like, forget it. But I feel like in adulthood, the rational part of my brain has rallied and made a Steve Jobs era comeback, era, Steve Jobs <laughs> two era comeback, and just been like just pounding the other part of it massively, which is, you know, kind of weird because I mean this is this is why I always you know I, I kind of 
chafe at the characterizations like we're doing a robot or not the podcast with jason's like oh you know is john a robot ever since i was a kid just because you're a nerd you get the whole kind of like right. uh, robot thing but even especially in adulthood it's upsetting to other people to see someone making decisions based on reasoning that i mean that sounds stupid but it is upsetting because it seems alien it seems it seems inappropriate they it's if it you seems are an american yeah if you are able to engage that part of your brain quickly or preemptively or not after 25 years everyone is okay with the person who's like they're an old man and they and they look back on their youth and realize boy you know i was really uh terrible to my kids in my first marriage or like you know everyone is okay with that it's like oh you should have perspective now or whatever nobody is okay with people figuring that out like at the moment they're like that just doesn't seem right you should be more upset or you should be ruled by your emotions and if you're not you're just not even a human being and the thing is in my mental model all that stuff is there it's just losing a fight you know it can be super strong i can have super strong feelings but i also want that other part to say if push comes to shove and i need to can i engage that part and figure out what the hell is actually going on and is it important to do that now so i don't let my emotions make me do something stupid right doesn't mean the emotions aren't there and you know again i find it insulting and upsetting people say you don't have any emotions you're like a robot they're there i'm just using the other part of my brain in this stupid mental model i have to try to make decisions that i think will make my life better right to try to to try to figure out what's actually going on uh and being inside my head it is not like being in a place where there is is devoid of emotion or whatever which i think is ridiculous because i'm always podcast yelling all the time like where the hell does that come from yelling is you know (laughs) i'm I'm engaging the emotional part of my brain for the most of the time on podcasts because there's nothing at stake and i'm just like winging it or whatever but that's the model i use for for my entire life and this model may work terribly for other people make no sense i know a lot of people who the mere thought of there being a rational part of their brain is is just you know like i gotta say against their religion but like (laughs) totally counter to their to their sense of self let alone that that would that thing would be in charge like again that's with the whole thing of like you're not even a human you're just an automaton with no feelings and who would want to live like that like obviously this model will not work for them but this is the model that works for me for wrangling my life and my decisions and how well it works give it like a passing grade so far uh but I, all I can say is I feel like I'm better off now than I was in high school when the rational part of my brain was uh, on the losing end of things. So so at some point you developed or came to develop an executive function, uh, almost like an editor or an expediter or I don't know what you want to call it, a judge. But something came along and I, the words I wrote down here were, it seems like you are, you have become very comfortable with... Uh, the idea of imperfection via something like self-doubt or skepticism. I don't know if those are exactly the right words, but I guess what I'm getting is that you're like, well, there's two angles to this. I want to get to the hypercritical notion in a minute because I think that's, I think you're really getting close to what makes the hypercritical thing so fascinating to me at least. But it seems like at some point you came to develop a an executive function for catching and forgive me because I'm thinking a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy right now where this stuff really matters a lot, right? The whole idea that like just because something happened in the world or just because I thought a thought doesn't mean I have to feel this way, right? I mean, this is a little bit, you know, mushy back to work kind of stuff, but that's that's an important idea to me is that just because this thing happened in the world and I thought this thought doesn't mean I have to feel this way all day. And it seems like on a more perhaps intellectual level, you have, uh, I'm thinking like an expediter in the kitchen. They're neither uh, a server nor a cook. They are the person who stands 
athwart <laughs> the cooks and and the um, and the servers. Like, there's something that. How did you come to catch incoming? Uh, you know, your standard in to know, wait a minute, don't let that go straight to the emotion area. Like, how did you come to notice that and make that part of how you think about things? Because it sounds like there was a time in your life where that was much more difficult. I, I felt that happening sort of as I, you know, around the middle of college, maybe I felt that that stuff finally sort of growing in. And I can tell you to this day, I'm still like everyone else where I do things based on my emotion. It's just the amount of time that is required for me to figure out how stupid I was is shorter, <laughs> right? It's not as if like, oh, I think about everything and do the right thing. It's like more like I act like everyone else does, you know, on instinct, on emotion. And then I regret it perhaps a bit sooner than other people. And then think about it and like can figure out what happened. Like that is basically the only difference. Unless I have distance from something, unless I, you know, unless I already start off with distance from something. But I can tell you that in, in real life, it effectively isn't that big of a difference because I'm still just doing stuff based on my emotion. I'm just regretting. I'm regretting it more. Uh, I think I have a clearer picture of uh, how stupid I was. And I'm and and the gap is really small. And it, it takes less time to realize you might be wrong. Yeah, and, and or, or to see it from the perspective of other people. What what was this like for other people? What does other people sense of me? Like that's that's why like I, in retrospect you look at my high school thing and I can see what was going wrong. That still happens to this day. It's, I'm not that different. It's just that now I have a much more clear eyed picture of of how everyone else sees me, and it's pretty bad. <laughs> and so like, and it's you know you can only go so far with these type of models. Like I can figure it out, and it's like. What do I have to do to make this better? But it's just really hard in the moment to like, you know, there is, I think there is something to the theory that basically we act based on like, you know, pattern recognition and experience and what part of the emotional centers of our brains fire off. And then the only difference is that instead of afterwards me rationalizing it and making myself the hero of my own story, I'm doing the opposite. <laughs> I am right. figuring out how I'm the villain of my, I, I am the ill will, Merlin. I'm figuring <laughs> out how... How I've got things wrong here. Um, and you. hopefully trying to turn that into actionable things to do better in the future or whatever. Like, it's the way I've been able to foster the the few important human relationships that I do have. While, but I'm just, I'm just terrible. I'm not a natural at that type of thing. I'm not good at it. Um, and so I'm trying to make up for a deficit there. But I've tried to find career that makes that aspect of me more of an asset. Like that that most people have emotional distance from programming. So you're starting off at a remove and uh, is this uh, obsession with figuring out what's really going on useful? Well, that's like basically debugging. Like, you know, do you really understand what's going on? Do you really understand what's going on? Like that's the process of debugging is always like check that variable that you think is always this value or you're sure is this value because that's the one that's not like, and it sometimes it just, you, <laughs> it's you know, like your take, keys are always the last place you look. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it takes a while. Like you, like you're checking everything else because like there's that the bedrock assumption that you're not even going to know that you're assuming. And that's the place you have to look like, Oh, you know, everyone knows that variable is never going to be undefined. So I'm not even going to look at that. And you don't you don't even have that thought. You spend an hour debugging before that variable even enters your mind. And then you look at it and you're like, this your desperation. You're like, look, I've tried everything else. I don't understand why the hell this isn't working. Then in desperation, you go to whatever the hell. Let me look at that thing and see. Yeah, might, let might me go well back three stack frames <laughs> and see if that was the thing. Like, obviously, this isn't going to be it. Like, that is all debugging it. That's all pro anyone who's programmed for 10 minutes has done that. I've done that thousands and thousands and thousands of times over my career. Um, so that is a, you know, th that kind of, uh, my personality fits that as a profession. So I'm trying to spin my particular quirks into something remotely positive, but in most aspects of life, it's big negatives. 
Really? Hmm. Okay. Hmm. Well, I, th- I think, thank you for that help, because you've actually just helped hugely, because I think you're also now pivoting to the thing that has made us love you uh, from a, a remove, which is the notion of being hypercritical. And so, like, to respond to what you said, like, it, uh, not to, you know, blow smoke up your skirt, but, like, what I'm getting from what you're saying is... Too that, late. <laughs> I'm a fan. I've always been a fan. Um, is that, like, what I what I like... What I like about you and what I think I get about you is you live in a perpetual state of wabi-sabi. Do you know that term? Yeah, like, there's another one with like the beauty of the thing. It's like damaged Japanese thing, something like that. Well, I mean like, okay, so so like you're the one <laughs> from the beginning. You're the one who's pointed to me as the whatever. I'm the, I'm the uh, like Merlin is the, um, what am I? I'm, a, I'm the contrarian. I'm the anti-authority guy, whatever. Like I'll, whatever, I'll, I'll take that mantle. But what I get about you is something actually stunningly similar which is that you are not only, you are skeptical of, at least skeptical, of any answer that proposes to be an answer to all questions in all places for all times. Like, you're not only skeptical about that kind of an answer, but you are like weirdly okay with the idea that this may never be completely resolved, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying to get closer to what could make this better. And, I, and, I, and that's that's what I, you know, for all, and again, to like go back to all of your like John's robot stuff, haha. Like that's what I, that's what I got from pretty early on with the hypercritical stuff is that in a weird way, well, two things. First of all, that it's always struck me that um, the more you are interested in or potentially admire, respect and love something, uh, in some ways, the harder you are on it because you want it to be better. That's but, a great skill for parenting, by the way. What, what's that? That's sarcasm. The more the more you care about something, the more critical you are of it. This is like how I am not predisposed to be a good parent. Anyway, oh no! Go on. I didn't want didn't want to derail you. Go oh, on. I don't want to. I don't want to do that with parenting. Oh no! I, uh, I no. I neither do I. Nobody does. But anyway, go on. <laughs> oh no! Well, you know, put that in the parking lot because I want to come back to that. No, but I mean, like on the one hand, like I mean, I'm stating something that to me seems very obvious, which is that you. I mean, when people, say, you know, there's that famous cliche that the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. If there's something that you have gotten very engaged with and have come to care a lot about, that might be something where you're not, it's not simply that your expectations are higher or your hopes are higher. It's that you know that they're capable of, of better. And you understand that like learning to identify the ways that this could be better is not a criticism in the typical sense of the word. It's not like a a slam. It's a way of trying to take a good thing and make it better. But even when we make it better, that just changes and adds a whole new number of ways we could still make it better, which gets me to the primary point, which is that it seems like you live in that perpetual state of wabi-sabi about the world and yourself of saying like, I'm kind of weirdly semi-okay with the fact that, that like anything that seems perfect is probably incredibly broken. Like uh, that for yourself or or the world or the things you like, you're okay with the idea that it's basically self-doubt. Like, you know, it's self-doubt in some ways is something that you've made very muscular. Self-doubt is not something that you try to push away. Uh, you know, the, the rational mind that comes in and goes, oh, I don't know, but what about this thing? You're not trying to push that away. You're trying to say like, no, that's just part of what we do. That's just part of the daily mental meeting is figuring out like what could be better today or what could be better this year. It seems like you're more comfortable with that than a lot of people are. And you don't have an emotional attachment to your idea of how this thing should be. 
I do, but I fight it. And and by the way, there is definitely, most definitely, a Welsh troll aspect to all of this. Like it's always there. Like don't don't think that you know my, it's my brain. Not, it's not that healthy. <laughs> no, exactly. Like self doubt. Really? Okay. Like there's self doubt, and there's like the monster that can eat you, or the Welsh troll, or whatever you want to talk about. Like, but that that is definitely there. Like the, the rational mind is a defense against all those things that are there. It's not like they're not there. They're there. They're there in force. It's just like you have to you have to outman them. And the the things you're talking about are like things that I love and, and criticize and stuff like that. That is more just a manifestation of things that everybody does. Like that they're uh they're seeking out things that are good. Everyone does this. Like what is my favorite whatever? What is my favorite movie? Find music that I like. Find like people want to do fun things that they find enjoyable, right? My pursuit of things that i that i want to that i like or that are enjoyable to me whatever it may be whether it be media consumption or you know people that i like or places that i like or anything like that leads me of course to things that i really like oh i really like apple i'm really like computers i really like this really like that upon finding those things my you know my critical faculty is saying uh you know my critical faculties are on all the time like i can see what's wrong like that's that's just the way my brain looks you look at everything and my brain is already picking out like i have no control over it. it's picking out things that are wrong with it it's just what it does right when i find something i really like it does the same thing in an attempt to push that thing to be even better it's just an extension of the looking for the thing that you really like looking for the restaurant that you really, which dish of this restaurant do i like the best which one is do, i want to find the good one if i get one and i really like it it's like, oh, well, if this thing was different, I would like it better. Like, or, you know, an Apple thing, this thing came out, and I really hope the next version of the software does this, because then it would be even better. That's, you know, I'm going to try to look at it and figure out what's wrong with it anyway. Figuring out what's wrong with it is like, is envisioning the better thing, because then, then I would seek out the better thing and say they do the thing that I wanted them to do, because, you know, whatever, someone else had the same idea. And now I have a better thing. It's, it's, I know it's not, I'm not actually making better things in the world for me to get, but like, that's, it feels to me more like aspirational that I am seeking out the best things I can find, figuring out what, how they could be better and hoping, uh, you know, sometimes I have a part in it or whatever, but hoping in that, that they will become better because then I'll have a better thing to look at. And that, that is like not a negative thing. Like, Oh, you know, how can, how can you pick out all the things that are wrong with your favorite movie? That's not how people engage with favorites, right? They're they're more likely to put it up on a pedestal and not touch it. And, and then want to defend the parts that other people criticize about it. Yeah, and I'll do that too. Like, I'll defend the parts that I really like or whatever. But but the idea that you would know, like, that you have, that you have thought about extensively all the things that are wrong with your favorite computer in the entire world is not the way most people operate. But it's the way I operate and I'm comfortable with it. Like, that, that feels that feels good and, and right to me, right? Even things that I make myself, a program that I write, I damn well better know what's wrong with the program I just wrote because it's my actual job to make it better. And if you just think it's great and perfect, like then you failed as a programmer, right? Because it is not, believe me. And if you don't understand what's wrong with it, then you are powerless to make it better. But I think you're, I feel like you're getting to another interesting part here, which is that like, what, what I think might frustrate some people about your approach is that, I mean, you know, you know, we've talked about this, whether it's uh, your Instacart delivery or your car salesperson, like they want the five star, you know, 10 star review or whatever, because that's what they need for the job. But, you know, the, the part that I think is vexing to people who are looking for, like, just tell me what's the best type approach is that I, I hear you saying like that not only do you think there should be a the best that endures, but that by virtue of the fact that it becomes like better than it was before, 
I, I, am I wrong? It feels like it just opens up more avenues for you to improve at that point. And that's, and that's okay. That we don't have to have this. This is not a religion. We don't have to say that like Apple 6 Plus is the greatest phone ever made. And anybody who disagrees is, you know, uh, is, is, an, is an infidel. Like you're saying, like, if I hear what you're saying is like, the more we love it, the more we realize how it could be better. Because that's the way, that's the way you, you know, you want to hope for the, like, we all want a hoverboard or we all want a lightsaber or whatever. So other people come up with ideas that we aspire to, like, yeah, that would be awesome. You can do that yourself, or at least I do that myself with things that I really like. Wouldn't it be awesome if it was slightly different in this way? Like, you know, that's the optimistic way of coming out of what's wrong with this thing, you know. And, and and you can do it in abstract ways, like what's wrong with this product line? Is it good for Apple to have 16 gig iOS devices overall for their brand? You know, like now I'm pulling myself way out of it. And now I'm saying, like, if, if I was managing Apple, would I think that long term, this is a good trade off of like a higher profit margins now for percentage of customers are going to be more frustrated or whatever that no one really ever knows the answer to. But it's the same type of thing at any type of analysis. You're always looking at like this thing that I like, how could it be better? And once you know that, then you can turn that into uh, hope for the better thing. You can turn that into lobbying for the better thing. If it's your thing, you can turn that into an actual effort to make the better thing, right? It's one of the reasons I listen to all the podcasts that I am on. I listen to myself, which is not fun to do. I don't know if you can listen. To, yeah, you, I think you can listen to yourself, right? You don't have a problem with that. But a lot of people have problems listening to themselves. So do I. I feel like I just have to do it because I, I have to hear myself do the stupid thing a million times. It can be it can be really brutal because like I hear myself last week saying, uh, when I meant to say, take the definition out of the dictionary, I actually said, take the book out of the dictionary. That is a sentence that doesn't make sense. You and said no. Star Trek instead of Star Wars just today, but like, I'm not even talking what? about misspeaking. Um, yeah, it's all right. Uh, I'm not, I'm not even talking about misspeaking. I'm talking about like, when, how did I come off? Did I sound like a jerk when other people hear me? Is this going to be convincing? Uh, did I, am I, am I super duper wrong about something? Have I changed my mind on it? Like is hearing myself from the, again, engaging the rational part of my brain, hearing myself from the outside and pretending this is someone else thinking, do I think this person is right or wrong? Is this argument convincing? Is this person being rude? Like, it's just, you, you, you keep thinking yeah. about that after it's out. That's why I'm listening to it because I'm good. And they're like, oh, you listen to yourself. And so your next podcast, you'll be better. I think I've gotten better at podcasting in the however many years I've been doing it, but barely better. Like my rate of improvement is super slow, uh, <laughs> but but it, it, but it exists. It exists. Oh, like, come on. No, like your, I mean, your I, episode with Dan of the pipeline is, is such a riot. You're like, well, I, I don't know if I could even talk about myself for 40 minutes. <laughs> uh, I mean, that there's like there's the actual facts of like, were you, were you nervous? Were you nervous about doing that? Oh yes, definitely. 100%. Really? What were you worried about when you were? Because it was it was a great interview. Um, you know, one of the great things Dan did with Five by Five is the the pipeline, which is you know I'm glad he's brought those episodes back because there's some really good ones in there. the The episode that uh, Dan and I did together on that show is one of my favorite favorite interviews I've ever been on. Um, he used it as <laughs> kind of a farm team for people who who would eventually become hosts on the show. And you know, Dan was texting me and joking about like, can you believe like Syracuse was so he seemed so weird about doing this because he wasn't sure he could talk about himself. And no, and I'm not saying like you talk about yourself, but like you have so much to say that in retrospect, it seems bananas that you had that self-doubt. What were you afraid would happen on that? Oh, the easy answer is like the same. I mean, we'll get we'll get into the social stuff in another episode, but like the whole idea, you know, they're all going to laugh at you. Like putting yourself out there in the public and just have a bunch of people tell you that you're a loser. Like that whole experience of my childhood, no, but like, right? Like, like what makes you think you are worthy of being talked about? 
not even just like anything you put yourself out there about anything like that that if you're socialized to believe that any personal expression of things that you like things that you believe things that is going to uh produce mass group agreed upon consensus ridicule that everyone will agree that you are laughable it's it becomes, it, for, it becomes carry for the same yeah they all agree the reason they all know why and like you know just yeah that's and so putting yourself out now there, you're you're snot buggy yeah, worse, much worse. Much right. worse. So, and again, like, is it a, is it a, is it a founded uh, fear? Probably not. But like, if you come, if if that's the environment that you come up in, you have that fear, and, and you know, you get over it by saying, "Hey, I came out and did this podcast and talked about it," and you know, uh, the whole lunchroom didn't make fun of me and in my life, you know, but mostly because those people are all far away, and if they don't like you, they don't listen. Like it's just you know, whatever. It's, this isn't this is not the rational part of everything. I'm saying, why were you nervous? Uh, Boy, nervousness, that's that's a great example of rational versus not rational. So nervousness. Um Well, I mean it's 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 almost impossible. It's like I don't know, trying to what? Trying to calibrate the seismograph while you're really nervous. I mean, like that's that's you can't do well, it. you like the call's coming from inside the nervousness. Yeah, yeah. So this this was a sad realization. When I was an adult, like so uh I'm nervous. I don't like public speaking, which is why I never do it. Um, many people ask me to. I appreciate them asking me. It's nice, but I never do it because I don't like it because I'm super nervous about it, right? Um, which is which is luxury I have, a luxury of not to be able to say no to those people. But anyway, uh, I know I'm nervous about public speaking. If I if I have to give a speech at sp- school or an oral report or whatever, even though it's even if it's on a topic that I know and everyone in the class is going to have to do it, and it's not really that much of an opportunity to be made fun of because you're not really putting yourself out there. You're just doing some oral report and something, like, whatever, right? I'm still nervous about going up in front of people. That is a nervousness that I recognize. My rational part of my game's brain goes, you're nervous because you got to talk in front of a bunch of people. And you're like, yep, I'm super nervous because i got to talk in front, of people, uh, in front of a bunch of people. I feel like I'm going to throw up. This is all. Everything is working as designed. People who don't like public speaking are very familiar with this feeling, right? Totally on par. S- single biggest fear in America, number two is dying. Number one is public speaking. Yeah, it, it, it's very, it is very common, right? So... I'm all on board with that. I get that. That work that fix fits into my model of things. The thing that sort of and this, you know this has happened many times since, but the thing that really blew away my model of this, uh, of my supposed model of self and figuring all the stuff out was was when I got married. Uh, I was excited to be engaged. I was excited to be married. I had you know I had no doubts about who I was marrying. It was like the the proudest happiest day of my life to that point, right? Uh, at the rehearsal dinner before I got married, I thought I had some bad food, like I had food poisoning or something, because I was incredibly sick to my stomach. And that feeling of almost, <laughs> almost being uh, feeling like you're going to throw up in any moment persisted through the entire night, the next day, through the wedding ceremony, and only tapered off after the ceremony. Oh, no. Over, right? It was not food poisoning, but the rational part of my brain was like, you're not nervous about getting married, right? Like, you totally... Like, every part of the the part of my brain that I thought I was in touch was like, what the hell? That's why I thought it was like, what the hell is going on here? Like, you're not, you don't have to do anything. You have to say two words, right? (laughs) You you know, like, there's... It seems so simple. (laughs) It's not a performance thing. And my rational mind was not, like, was not nervous about getting married. I was, you know, the day before, like, the whole, you know, it's just, you know, head over heels, like, this is great, or whatever. And but my body had other plans, and that's when I realized there's recesses of my brain in there that I just am not in touch with. That are like, "F you, you're nauseous now." And you know, I mean, given enough distance, which was basically like the next day, or you know, probably during, but you know, when the feeling tapered off, I'm like, "Okay, 
This is tapering off. I didn't actually throw up. It wasn't food poisoning. My best guess, uh, and I haven't really revised this much since, is some part of my brain that I was not in touch with was super nervous that this was an important day for my wife, like her wedding that she'd planned and everything like that, and that I didn't want to do anything to screw up her day. And that, and, and that I was sort of performing in front of two families, my new families, my in-laws, and my current family, and like, the, not that I was performing anything or whatever, but that was, but my, I was not in touch with any of that. All I knew was I was felt physically ill. And that was like, oh, you thought you had things under control when really, there. it's like inside out. There's like, there's like characters you don't even know about in rooms you don't even know about, <laughs> like pulling levers you don't even know about. And boy, that was rough. Like, and so that was a good lesson, like in my early adulthood of like, believe me, you do not have it figured out yet. Like that, that, that there, that your brain is controlling your body in a way that you just do not understand and are not in touch with it all. And I think I was in too much denial about it. It's like, but I'm not nervous. It's like, obviously you are. And you are not even in touch with the part that's making you feel like you want to puke right now. That was definitely humbling and, and a good experience, I think. Right. But also, you know, in that case, the, the, the need to do something in meat space is a little bit different from having to do something with ideas. The thing that they have in common is, you know, in my experience of terrible self-talk is that, you know, I, I can, I can, I can self-talk myself into anything, including many, many things that the rational part of my brain does not want to be talked into that, you know, you can, you can so easily get into a loop with those kinds of things. But like, you know, what we're describing here is a certain kind of like ooh, world of abstract, remote world of ideas where like there is something comforting about me sitting here in San Francisco, you sitting there near Boston, and all we have to do is talk into these microphones and not look at each other. Oh, yeah. It's ideal for people who don't like to make eye contact. Ideal. Oh, I'm so much more introverted than I like to think. Um, uh, like, I don't know about that. You'd be amazed. I, I was talking to my friend Max about this yesterday. We had a phone call, and we were talking about like how our biggest like pants-shitting fear is like you, you not only get a call, you get a call that makes all of your iOS devices buzz, at the same time, so all over your house, everything's going, bring, 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 and it and, and it says it says FaceTime, and you're like, Ugh. like for me, that's so like I just I don't I don't want my buzzes I don't want my devices buzzing, and I certainly don't want anyone to look at me. Why did somebody call me? Like why is this happening? Like and, and, and like why does that freak me out? Why is that such a big deal? But like it's so dumb. Like I but I, I like I just I don't want to have that interaction that I wasn't expecting. You, that, that freaks you out because you haven't made your peace with the fact that, like, as I have, that I'm never going to answer any call, voice, or video or otherwise unless I know the person who is making it. <laughs> never. Like, I'm never, I'm never going to pick up the doesn't phone that, unless I know that, you. Doesn't that, hmm, you're healthier than I am because... Like, so it's, so it's not nervous. It's like, I, I know that I'm not going to answer that. Like, if the FaceTime call, you are because you're like, oh, should I, shouldn't I? What if it's There's, from the area code where your elderly parents live? I know their numbers. Like they, have, they would come up on the caller ID, right? Yeah. What if that's a hospital? Yeah. The the worst. Yeah. So the worst one is like if that call comes at three a.m., then you have to answer it. Like that is the problem. Yeah, but I mean, like you know. you're <laughs> you're you're being awfully strong and self possessed, but you don't have that racing mind thing of like you don't catastrophize when when that happens. I do. If the phone rings after a certain hour at night, I know it, you know it's a disaster, right? No. Something do, do not disturb as your friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I have it on, but the, the, our home phone doesn't have that on. But but yeah, but like you're you're being confronted with the idea that you now have to enge turn into social interaction mode, and you are not in that gear, and you don't know if you can get up to that gear. I'm never in that gear, so it's kind of like you right, know, right. kind of 
you know, this even keel the whole way through. But yeah, this, you know, like that someone is requesting for you to turn on all the switches, fire up all the generators, get your face ready to make facial expressions. <laughs> hope, and, you, hope you shaved. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the least of your concerns. Yeah, maybe hope you're dressed and are, you know, not sitting on the toilet or whatever. Like, yeah. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Squarespace. I love Squarespace, and I think you will, too. You can learn more about Squarespace right now by going to squarespace.com. Gang, I have been a huge fan and evangelist of Squarespace for over five years now. It's not only the place that I use for hosting many of my sites, and yes, my podcasts, it's also the first place that I recommend for anybody wanting to do the same. Squarespace sites are gorgeous. They are professionally designed masterpieces that look great right out of the box. Regardless of your skill level, you don't have to be a coder, you don't have to be a designer, it just works. Squarespace offer intuitive and easy-to-use tools that take all the pain out of getting your stuff up. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology powering your site, and that ensures security and stability, even if you get a link from John Syracuse. Squarespace is trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected companies in the world. The crazy balls part is that Squarespace plans start at $8 per month, and that price even includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year, which you should totally do. So please check these folks out and do tell your friends about it. I don't know if Squarespace is perfect for everybody, but it's perfect for somebody you know. Get yourself out of the webmaster business and point your friends to Squarespace. You can go and start your free trial site today with no credit card required by visiting squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code DIFFS, D-I-F-F-S, and that will get you 10% off your first purchase. You are going to love this place. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all the great shows. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. One of your primary things here is this, I don't know, I want to say not Cartesian, but like this this breakdown. So it sounds like uh, one of the most, you know, clear and lucid things you've said is that you see this partly as a, as a battle, a contest, a, something where there's the rational mind and then there's a more emotional mind. Like, fair enough? I would say there's the rational mind and there's everything else and that everything else includes a decoy rational mind as well. Like it's, it's just, it's just this one, this one bastion of, of rationality. And it's the question of, can it win over this thing? How long will it take before the rational mind is able to, to win over this? Sometimes it stays years, months, like whatever. Sometimes it's right in the moment. Okay. So let's temporarily bracket the the stuff that we that you're most of us would agree you're pretty great at which is like talking on a podcast about you know technology and uh, and stuff like that like you're pretty great at that but like for on a personal basis like do you feel like at this point do you feel like is there a natural advantage in your mind for rational versus everything else is it have you gotten to where you're you're like how good are you at this point at like being able to catch that you, you say you're getting better at it you feel like it's you know or the way i like to put it because i'm a karma suck you're getting less bad at it um so you catch something coming in and you're able to process that before it goes straight to the everything else part of your brain do you think the rational part of your mind wants to win Oh, yes, definitely. Like that's the rational part of my brain is me. And very rarely, by the way, do I catch it on the way in. Best I can hope for is <laughs> on the way out. So I regret what I'm saying as I'm saying it. Like, unless it's something that I've thought about before, unless it's something but that I, 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 don't, I don't see you like, you know, I don't see you being a dick. I don't see you being mean. Well, I, don't, I don't see you. I don't see you like striking out 
um, blindly at people in in a way that would seem to reflect the everything else part. I, I just I, I, I'm so not you, a monster, like, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> you're you're I don't know, like, I don't, I don't get into too many personal things, but just like being a husband and father, right? I don't I very often feel like that I'm being a lousy husband and father. Probably, I was because a terrible. I, am. I was a terrible father on at least three occasions that I can I can like I can give you chapter and verse three times today that I hated how I handled being a father. Right, and we all like we we all those things. You know, being a husband, same thing. Like being in a, a friend to anybody, being a son, being like all these things that you know you're not doing well at, and very often you're making the same mistake over and over again. Uh, and you see it and you're trying to fix it and like that's a whole separate problem like how to get yourself to fix it. but at least your rational mind can hopefully see hopefully see what you're doing wrong and then realize what can i do to fix this what can i do to do better try not to get upset about something it's difficult when you're hungry it's difficult when you're tired very often the things that you did that were bad were because you acted impulsively and you can only think about it the next day because you're super angry about it or your kids really are driving you crazy or whatever like I want the rational part to win, but very often it is like the, just a mop-up crew that's <laughs> coming through after the battle has already been gone and maybe saying, well, I guess we can build a new farm in this location now that this <laughs> old one has been burned down. Do you do you like the rational part of your mind? Yes, definitely. What do you like about it? Uh, it's like I said, this model, this whole silly mental model is the tool I use to... Well, I'm sorry. Let me explore this. Like, like obviously, like, not obviously, it strikes me that you like the rational part of, part of your mind because it has a reason why it does what it does. But like, is is the rational part of your mind the part that you feel like is you that you like? Because, I mean, you know, we're all kind of screwed up on our ways and that's what makes us who we are. But like, do you feel like rationality represents your better angels? Yes, I, I, it's the it's the thing I use to figure out what is going on. What should I do? What should I do next? Because that's the you know that's the, the ultimate answer is like you're trying to figure out. All right, all right, brain. All right, us. What are we doing next? What are, are we deciding to do this? Or are we deciding to do that? Are we going to say this to this person? Or are we do that? What is our plan? Like what what's next? What's the next move? And I don't like the feeling of either not knowing what the next move is or just going based on like feelings. My my gut, my feelings are all screwed up. They're all screwed up from like. Just because of the way I am, genetics, childhood experiences, they're untrustworthy. If I go with my gut, I will do stupid things. So I need this tool to figure out uh, something reasonable to do. And I feel like that part of me is the best part of me. The other parts of me, all, all I mean, you know, again, it's so many of my instincts are are bad. So many of my instincts are like <laughs> are, are revenging wrongs from childhood that have nothing to do with the current situation. Oh, you know, you, like, like it's like the whole idea of being well adjusted. I am, I am not well adjusted, right? So the well, only tool the only, I have. The only to, way to be well adjusted is to not be able to remember. Yeah, right. Or not, yeah, not not remember those things. Like because we're shaped by those things, and so many people I see are shaped by those things, and like that is the way they navigate life forevermore. Uh, and sometimes that's fine if they are, you know, uh, if they are a reasonably well-adjusted person and had a healthy childhood and everything went okay. And my childhood was like a breeze compared to most people's childhood, right? right like right, right. super luxurious or whatever. But I still find that it leads me astray and instincts, the few things that were slightly more difficult for me and my own just challenges for how I am genetically or whatever, uh, lead me to what I recognize as bad decisions. And I'm uh, the other part of me, the good part of me is fighting against that to say use your brain use the smart part of you what separates you from a monkey like you you, you what right. what is it that, that makes you any different from these uh 
the, the like just you know a fruit fly like this this is the part this is the important part of your brain this is you this is what makes you you and this is the best tool available to you kind of like science is the best tool available to you to figure out how to do something like you know science and engineering like if you have a goal if you want to go to the moon you're not going to feel your way there right like this is this is it <laughs> this is what i've got and this is this is the, the one thing that has made us, t- you know, the dominant species on the planet. It's super important. It's what separates us from everybody else. Just a little tiny bit more intelligence and that, and that sort of that rational part of your brain that can reason things out. And, and you know, like, that's that's me. That's who I'm rooting for in the, in the sea of everything else. <sighs> so um, here's the Fight Club question. Um, is, there a, is there a checksum for how you know the rationality is working? Um. I realize this feels a little bit inside baseball, but, um, you know, for a lot of us, for most of us, I think, uh, if we're completely caught up in how we're thinking and how we're doing and how we're just everything-ing, like, it's, everything starts to feel the same. Emotions are indistinguishable. And, like, if you've never grokked this from back to work, which I assume you've heard in the past, like, for me, like, I'm constantly thinking about the process of... um, kind of cognition, thinking, behavior, like how those things all like feed into each other. Uh, And I think this is an actual like real world question. Like, how do you know your rationality is still working? How would you know if your rationality had been hacked by everything else? Yeah, you got to keep questioning it. Like you never... So that that self-doubt is is really a prime mover for you. Yeah, you have to. The the moment dogma is, is... the worst thing ever the moment you are sure that something is working right it's just like debugging the program that's that's when you know you're doomed like you have to doubt every part of it always uh and it doesn't mean you get paralyzed we're like well i just can't trust anything this entire system is untrustworthy yeah by the way it is all untrustworthy sorry about that but anyway uh you just got to make do with what you have right and so just keep questioning don't uh don't pin anything down don't be afraid. No, nothing is beyond revisiting. Nothing is beyond doing a future experiment to see what the truth of the matter is. That's just you know, it's just got to be the way you live. It's just basic scientific method, right? Without all of the uh, the ego appeal to authority, takes a really long time to overturn things because someone really famous believed it. Pressure you know? to publish. Yeah. Um, okay. God so doesn't play dice. <laughs> Einstein. Ding. Um, so let me ask you one more because we're running a little long here. Um, um, there are people out there who, like me, want to get better um, at what they do. The question I was originally going to ask you, you can see in the notes, was like, um, and I, I think this is still an interesting question on its own, but the question I was going to ask was, like, what is it that engineers wish that non-engineers knew or did or thought differently? But like, I'm going to... You can answer that if you want. But the question I was going to ask is, like, if somebody wanted to become, like, uh, not just John Syracuse, but, like, a more careful thinker or a more critical person or a more self-aware person, like, what what would you say to somebody who wanted to be able to process the input better? That's a, that's a tough one because... Well, I, and you know, like, I've okay, okay, so I'll help a little. Like, I've heard you, like, various times, like, um, I've heard you mention... Something I added already added to show notes for this week is the Wikipedia page for logical fallacies. So, like to me, like <laughs> between the logical fallacies uh, page and the uh, what's the other page, the um, the 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 like thought biases page, like all the confirmation biases and all the different things that we do. Like, what what do you think is a first step for somebody who wants to feel less clouded 
about not not to become you, not to become like rational plus everything else, but like what would you recommend to somebody who's struggling to to make more sense of the world? And not just as an engineer, but as John, like, what would you say to somebody? Like, what's a good way to um, get a little bit better about dealing with that stuff? Well, two parts of this that are frustrating. Um, The first one is that I have always been amazed and continue to be amazed by the ability of people to compartmentalize. It is just people are amazing. I am so good at that. Like it is. is I have so much cream from 2014 in my refrigerator. Right. It's compartment like obviously compartmentalization is good. It was a skill that we have for a reason, right? But well, let me like, stop you there. How, how would you like I remember the first time I heard that phrase was with regard to Bill Clinton during the impeachment hearings. How would you describe compartmentalization? The way the way I'm using that term now uh, is is thinking about like, oh, if someone wants to improve their critical thinking skills, blah, 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 blah. And like you, you could present them like, oh, I would suggest that they, you know, oh, take up programming or, or learn uh, mechanical engineering and solve word problems or whatever, like in, in some sort of realm or like do logic puzzles or read those fallacies or whatever. Like, and people can, can do that and like, oh, this is great. And they feel like they're learning things and they feel like these are, these are tools that I'm going to use uh, in my life. And these are great thought technologies and so on and so forth. And there are sections of their life and things that happen to them that they will never apply those tools to. They won't even occur to them that those things are even applicable in any way. That's what I mean by compartmentalization, where they'll be like, "Oh, well, that's all well and good for X," like but they they've will got never some kind of apply little, that like, like a treasure y. room of the stuff that that they don't mess with, right? Because they, I mean, because whatever it is, they they and like it's totally unvisited. It's like it's unvisited assumptions they're not aware of it no one else is aware of it It never even occurs to them that this thing is relevant in any way and so that's why i feel like oh you want to get better at this most of the time the ways people need to get better at it is applying it to the places that they dare not apply to they dare not look that they don't even think about that they don't even know exists like the part of me that was nervous when i was getting married things that you don't even know are in there that's the place where you need to apply this stuff and nobody wants to hear that and nobody wants to do it um and so I feel like, you know, this is like, oh, can people really change? Like, we're getting into that at territory now, I feel like. But in some respects, um, well, maybe it's like I, basically the, the nicer answer is like, yeah, like if, if you've never if you've never taken a logic and reasoning course, if you've never even been introduced to the topic, pursuing that can feel super awesome. Can it feel like, wow, I'm I'm learning a lot of things and I can apply this and you will apply them to other parts of your life. So I don't want to be like too pessimistic, like, oh, you're never going to apply it or whatever. And if you don't if you don't apply it like I do, like to everything, then it's pointless. It's not. Like um and if anyone has any desire to learn about those things, they probably already have and they probably already know all this stuff or whatever. And but like <laughs> you're, you're like, terrible you, you're terrible at this. Well, you know, you've read the logical fallacies page, you know about all these biases, you hear about them all the time on NPR. Like it's you're you're already there. Like it's but the thing is the way my mental model may not work for you. Like I I think listening to you on back to work is fascinating because your challenges, the things that you find challenging are things that I don't find challenging at all and vice versa. So you have to have totally different models to hack yourself. You, the rules for playing Merlin, for playing your own game right. are so different than mine. They have to be because you've got a different opponent. Like your brain is a different opponent there. So you have, well, you know, over the years and have come up with all these systems, the systems that would never work for me, but they work for you. And like the ability to come up with systems that work for you that I think is much more important than like, oh, I wish I could think about this in this way like you do. It's like, that's not going to help no, you. you no, got to no. figure out what I, it is I, I to, to deal with God, yourself. Jesus, no, I, I, I didn't mean that at all. But okay, I'm going to hijack your topic because here's one thing that I, uh, you don't have to agree, but here's one thing we both have in common, which is we both realized at length that it's, it's worth having, <laughs> I don't know, a decontamination facility 
for whatever that thought is. Like when something comes in and comes barreling into your brain and it demands attention and wants to run straight into the emotion part, like, um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I would like to think we agree on this, maybe, which is that, like, there's a, you have the, you have the ability and in time you will learn you have the responsibility to be the person who decides where whatever that thought is goes. Because that thought could turn into an instant emotion that just amplifies the easiest thing you've been thinking for 40 years. Or it could go over here in this other area where you go, wow, that's super interesting. Like if I, if I turn that, if I stop for a minute and I hold this in the containing cell and I turn it 45 degrees, if I turn this 180 degrees, I see a side of this I did not see before. That to me is the growth. I mean, like for myself, that's the growth opportunity. I'm not saying people need to go out and buy like notebooks or need to go become engineers, but like I feel like a, a maybe a common ground is like you get better when you start realizing that whatever you automatically think doesn't have to be who you are. Yeah, my my impression from all these years of listening to Back to Work is that your conceptualization of this, like the whole the, the way you phrase things and the way you're modeling, kind of like. Uh, what other people's action do doesn't have to dictate what you do down from like people sending you an email shouldn't you know email is not your to-do list that everyone else gets to add items to and like the the way you conceptualize this and the way you phrase it I think is a much better match for how most people think about this like that's why I feel like it resonates with people the way I think about it probably does not resonate with people because it, it, it's it's a different set of givens it's a different set of challenges or whatever but I but I think I think you're right that we're you reject the analogy or like like clarify that like what is it that you think I think we're arriving about? at the same place but like the whole idea of like telling yourself that uh, something that happened doesn't necessarily have to dictate how you feel that I think rings true to a lot of people and conceptualizing the way that, that, that rings true for me uh, thinking that how something happens is going to dictate how you feel is not something that I have to go against because it was never a given it was never like an active rule you know what I mean like it's not I don't have to combat that by saying was the that, sentence was that to true myself. when you were 14 uh, no, no, but there was no, like, it was, it was the, uh, it was the other set of like, I, I always rationally knew what was supposed to be going on. It's just that I was, it was losing. Like, you know what I mean? It was, I never thought, I never thought that like the world is, is controlling me. I always knew how things should be working. They just weren't working that way. Right. Um, so, wow, it, so you, you were really at war in some ways, like, it, like with, it, with the world and with yourself. Yeah, and, and that's the, the difference is the awareness. Like, do you know what's happening? Do you know the surgery is happening? Are you awake through the whole thing, right? Like, mm -hmm. and and but you can't move. You're helpless anyway. Like, you know what I mean? Like that that type yeah. of thing. Whereas the way you phrase things, I think, is more in touch with people because they, uh, because they are thinking that like it doesn't occur to them that that, 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 that what you're offering is insight. That oh. Actually, I, I don't have to, you know, but by, by repeating that, I don't have to feel this way just because this person said this thing. I get to choose or whatever. Like that, that is a, uh, that is an insight that they need. And that is a, a thing they can think about to help them master. Like I, again, I can't be in other people's heads or whatever, but when you say that, I feel like you are connecting with more people than my model, because my model is based on a set of givens that is different than more people's than yours is. But we're both arriving at the same place, which is, Hey, uh, get a handle on what's going on here um, rather than just, you know, sort of uh, being one step above uh, an animal acting on instinct all the time and then post-rationalizing everything. Mm. 
Why won't you help people? You could you could help so many people. I don't think I can help. I can barely help myself. Oh my god! <laughs> I got this one job at a time. It's, it's, here, just, like, it's right there. I know you have it. It's it's it's, it's just like it's like just I'm right in front here. I'm just grabbing it. Like you could grab it and, and help people, and you won't. Oh, well, the thing is, like I I feel so ill-equipped to do that because I just I just mm. I don't know. Maybe this is this whole silly alienation thing or whatever. Like, but like, oh, you always feel like you're so different than everyone else. Like, I'm the same as all a bunch of other nerds. But, in the, <laughs> but you're it, the real Holden Caulfield. Yeah, but in, but. In the grand scheme of things uh you know i, I am in uh, i feel like i am more different than them whatever the mean is i'm off of it by a significant amount right and you don't it think just, that's it, where part of your identity comes from it does i'm just but i'm just saying like that's why i feel like uh things that work for me are going to work for a smaller number of people because i just feel like i'm i feel like i'm different not in like a different kind of like oh i'm different everyone but but just just <laughs> just different like I, right. i'm okay with it it's fine i just that's why i feel like i don't have and and honestly like that's you know some of us just did a bad self-esteem chafing the idea of like how can people be better at the thing is like oh, you don't want to that's whatever like <laughs> i'm i'm uncomfortable uh giving people advice uh based on how i'm trying to do things because i just look at how like how am i actually doing if you could exactly if you could get this skill would this help you i don't know maybe probably not do you um mentor people at work Oh, God, I try to. I don't. You know, I don't like to ask you too much about your job. You you don't want to talk too much about that. But like, you know, it seems like you have a job that you are okay with. Like you're probably good at what you do. But like in your capacity as a you know, as as a working John Syracuse, like what happens when you have to go? And so, are you guys agile? Are you doing agile? Oh, I don't know sort of kind of okay sorry really. sorry whatever whatever I, I, <laughs> yeah. no i don't mean it as a buzz buzzword but i mean it in the sense of like you don't get to just go like sit in a cave and like you know listen to edm you have to deal with people like yeah you, so like what happens when a new person comes in and you need to bring them in into the culture like what do you do to help them out yeah i try to be better at that than i used to like i had all the same uh luckily since i learned to program late i did it wasn't as bad as most people but I, but uh, i I have in me all the same bad habits that every, uh, you know, macho <laughs> macho programmer has of like, the. You, have you read like the, the 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 hacker school rules? No. This I don't even know what this is affiliated with. But some it. kind of some kind of school for like teaching people programming, and they had to come up with a series of rules that prevent the uh, the the most common pathologies of programmers teaching other programmers. And the the only one I can remember off the top of my head now is the uh, no feigned surprise. I think it was the one that got the most PR. And feigned surprise is like, really? You don't know about the blah, blah, blah operator? No feigned surprise. Because <laughs> it makes the person feel dumb. You're not actually surprised they didn't know it. The whole point is that they're learning. You just want to feel superior for a second. <laughs> it's helping it's no one, including you. It, yeah, it's it's insulting. It's rude. It makes the person not want to ask another question. You're not actually surprised. It's terrible. People do it all the time, like, and you know, so that type of thing is like how not to mentor people in programming. Like, we should we'll put that link in the show notes. But basically, like, just go down the list. It's all the, and also, you know, like, why why don't people want to be programmers? Like, unless you have that sort of masochistic macho mindset of like, I'm going to go in there and take the abuse so I can later be the one who's abusing. It's terrible. So, <laughs> I'm I'm always fighting against that. I'm trying to be, you know, understanding, patient, explain things without being insulting, uh, good natured, like just. I'm trying, but I'm also super picky and and I have lots and lots and lots of years of experience and can explain to you at length why I think this way of doing things is right. Like I feel like I understand it and like 
sometimes sometimes uh, things that you learn from experience even if you feel like you can explain them like from every possible angle are not convincing to other people and now it just sounds like you're harassing them and haranguing them and like yeah sometimes you just have to do it like there's something to be said for like the you know the master apprentice thing where the master doesn't have to explain to the apprentice just do it this way you'll understand why you have to do it this way in 20 years uh and then the situation where the master is actually wrong yeah. and this thing that they've been doing for 20 years is stupid and the apprentice <laughs> is and the apprentice is actually right and they're never going to learn that and they're going to die thinking their way was right well, like that, that's, 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 that's that's always out there that's the curse of getting older in some ways and the, certainly one of the curses of becoming a parent is like all of the most like cliche things that you were for forced to like turnover in your mind over the years are so often like so self-evidently true like that it's it's just it's so painful but there's no way anybody could have ever like explained that to you like how do you say to somebody like work harder than you think you should and be nicer than you think you need to be or put or put differently be kinder than you think you need to be be kind and work hard. Like that's so lame. Like what could be worse? That's like that's like sub Old Testament advice. But like you know, <laughs> if you actually did that every day, if you woke up every day and you you were you worked harder than you, than you needed to, and you were kinder than anybody expected, like if you did that a little better every day. But like, how do you say that to somebody who's twenty five? Yeah, and people are so bad at that anyway. Like because they think they're being kind, but they're not. They're you always you you got it right when you said kinder. It's like, okay, just be kinder. However you were going to be, turn that like one notch. Like yeah. you're still going to be, you're still, people are still going to think you're a jerk a lot of the time uh, and you probably are going to be, but like just turn it a little bit, right? What is the, um, we got to get out of here. What's the, what's the thing that you're um, closest at getting better at right now that you've str- struggled with in the past? Like what's, what's something that like you've turned over in your mind and maybe hated yourself about in the past? What are you getting better at these days? God, progress is slow on all fronts. I think they call this middle age. Mm. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Let me like, send you I, my Wythings data. <laughs> yeah, like that's... No, but I mean like, you know, no, I'm not trying to be inspirational. You know, who cares? But I mean like, is there anything where you're like going, uh, like despite all of the, all those other things, are there things where you go like, yeah, you know what? I, I suck less at this one thing than I used to. I'm maybe not perfect at this, um, but I, is there anything where you feel like you're getting better in a way that surprises you, for example? I don't think it's surprising. I think the best thing, the thing I can pick out the most that I feel like I've gotten better in uh, at the past few years is to use more cliches from uh, AA and Roderick on the line, uh, accepting the things that I can't change. A lot of things that I used to just be super upset about at work, like that I would just think about on the whole drive home, I'd be up, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night or whatever. A lot of those things in recent years, I've been able to, the rational part is one. And I've said, you know what? That's the way it is. Let's look at it on its face. What does this really mean for your life? What is, do you really care about this that much? What are the, prioritize? Like what are, you know, what are, what is the most important, second most important, third most important thing in your life? How does this thing that you're upset about work affect those things? Oh, <laughs> maybe, maybe it doesn't affect them at all. That is so hard. Like, that is so can hard. you just, can you just be okay with, um, and yeah, it is hard, but I feel like most recently I've gotten better at that just because like I was just getting, you know, too anxious about work-related things and i really just needed to engage the other part and say seriously like work seriously like <laughs> you know get a grip here like of all the things in your life this is the one that you should be able to tolerate the most bs in which i know a lot of people have have trouble with and it's like oh you go to the stupid job and you tolerate bs it's like yep i go to a job and sometimes i tolerate bs what are the benefits of tolerating that at bs 
what what are the alternatives to tolerating that bs like should you get another job will the other job have less bs where you know just having having the rational part went on that has let me have less work-related anxiety and it's almost like a, a novel way of applying your thought technologies is to go like well if i totally dedicated myself to trying to eradicate this weirdly emotional feeling i have about work things would get better for everybody how and like, you know, once you kind of turn that over in your mind, you go like, ah, you know, this is just my hang up. Or would I be able to do it even? Or like, would, yeah, you know, like, am, am I ever right, going to be right, able right. to convince Joe but Jim it, Bob you know, at the office? Infinite that this timeline, is, infinite know. timeline. If I spent all of my resources and all of my time on this, like, could it be better? Well, let's assume it could. Like, what would actually be better? Like, that's, to me, that's the other side of the hypercritical approach is like, you know, if I poured unlimited resources into this, you know, 55 gallon drum of crap, could anything be made better? And like that to me is a real wake wake up call where you're like, wow, like I could care so much about this thing and I could still never do anything to make it better because the problem is not really with the 50, 55 gallon drum of crap. It's with my brain. It's like my cognition of that. That's that's the thing that yeah, you need I mean, to be fixed. Like you said on the, on the back to work episode, the guy, the people who aren't washing their cups, learning to be okay with that is so much more productive than like having just every, like just trying to figure <laughs> out how can I get them to be neater and Try, trying to be productive about putting, like, persuading them. <laughs> putting passive aggressive notes and like trying to change the policy and it's like seriously like just how does this actually affect you? i don't have this problem like i'm just picking a trivial thing out of the hat or whatever but like no but people you know, care like, people care right yeah it's that it's that type of thing of like when when you find when you find yourself like is there a physical ramifications when you find yourself like having anxiety and chest pains about something in work and you're like you just it's just time to try this on like seriously work like you have a good job everyone in your family is healthy compare this to all the jobs you've ever had before is this the thing to hang your hat on i mean sometimes maybe it is sometimes like your career is on the line and you really need to do whatever you know do it when you got to do it but sometimes it's it's cups in the break room and you have to you know whatever like the you know the accept the things you can't change wisdom no difference blah 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 like (laughs) (laughs) that'd be a great poster Except the chance, except things you can't, blah, blah, blah. That, that is such a useless slogan because it's like, uh, it, what it boils down to after they tell you the first two things, it's supposed to sound all profound and everything. And they're like, wisdom, they're like, that's the whole thing. You're not helping me at all. You're just saying, yeah, be smarter, do better. <laughs> so <laughs> I, it makes people feel it's a, it's a, it's a mental model. Again, it's a thought technology. It works for some people, but yeah, uh, my, my brain rebels against that by saying, you have, you've said nothing. All you have said is be better with your brain parts. <laughs> the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah, help me with that. Nope, sorry. Not, I got nothing for you. I got platitudes. Platitudes. <laughs>